right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a special edition of the No Laying Up podcast. My name is Chris Solomon, and today's episode is going to be a deep dive into the 1991 Ryder Cup. This episode is brought to you by our partner, BMW, who is, of course, a global partner of the Ryder Cup, and we greatly appreciate the support they've given us on several Ryder Cup special episodes that you'll hear this year, as well as the Paul McGinley episode from last year. Over the course of the past year, I've scoured the internet for every detail I could find on the 91 Ryder Cup, read every book I could get my hands on, watched every YouTube video, and I can assure you there's never been an episode of this podcast that has taken more hours to produce. In the summer of 2018, we did a two-part Ryder Cup oral history covering each event from 1999 to 2016. Starting with 99 was a bit arbitrary, perhaps biased considering my American rooting interest, But also, that event was believed to have kicked off a new era of the Ryder Cup as tensions that had been boiling for years finally overflowed into one riot of a weekend. But if you keep pulling on the thread of what led to the controversy of 1999, you end up back at 1991. So we tracked down some of the key players, captains, and attendees to take us back to the event that many say is the one that changed the Ryder Cup forever. It all came down to that last hole. And they started yelling at each other. Like Zinger says, I take these things personally, Chip. He could get under your skin. And Savvy looked at me and he said, no, no, it's okay. If this is the way you want to play today, we can play this way. We had been getting our asses handed to us. It became urgent for the United States to win it back. Are you kidding me? That might have been the strangest shot by a pro I've ever seen right there. Rang my room at 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, everybody thought I was such a prick at Ryder Cups. Balled my eyes out for about 10 minutes. Dave Stockton said, and hey, we want you to bring the ship home. But I've got a funny feeling that's going to come down to my match. We both came to the same conclusion that it's a left edge putt. I mean, I'm shocked. Before we get too far in, I'd like to give some thanks to the PGA of America for some of the audio that you'll hear throughout this series. To Kurt Sampson's book, The War by the Shore, for many of the anecdotes that you'll hear throughout. To the 2012 Golf Digest article titled The Rowdy Ryder Cup at Kiowa, from which I've pulled many, many quotes for this episode. To Bernard Gallagher and his book, Captain at Kiowa. To Stuart Moore from the PGA Tour for helping me uh, set up so many of the conversations you'll hear. And as well, all the participants, Captain Dave Stockton, Bernard Longer, Mark Kalkovecchia, Hale Irwin, Chip Beck, Corey Pavin, Paul Broadhurst, Paul Azinger, Lanny Watkins, and Jim Moriarty. Also want to give thanks to the Golf Channel for some of the audio clips that you'll hear from the Faraday Show. There's many reasons that things started to simmer in 1991. After decades and decades of dominance from the American side, the Europeans had begun to level the scales. And of course, the sporting backdrop for the Ryder Cup was that we had been getting our asses handed to us. This was going to be America, you know, coming back. That's Jim Moriarty, who was there taking photos for Golf Digest. And here's U.S. team member Hale Irwin. We were wanting to win badly to kind of get the cup back, get the momentum back in the United States because Europe had seized that through the 80s. And rightly so, they had played better. I think our players perhaps were maybe just felt like we were supposed to win. That didn't happen. After the U.S. team barely edged out the Europeans in 1983 at PGA National, thanks to some late heroics from Lanny Watkins, Europe began their run. 
They trounced the U.S. at the Belfry in 1985 and then won for the very first time on U.S. soil in 1987 at Muirfield Village. In 89, the Europeans retained the cup thanks to a 14-14 tie again at the Belfry. The competition aspect of this event had not only been leveled, it actually began to tilt in favor of the Europeans for the first time in the history of the Ryder Cup. The last time the matches were halved in 1969, the teams shared the cup with each side retaining it for a year, rather than the Americans retaining it as they had won the 1967 playing of the event. 20 years later, there was no such offer from the Europeans. We came with a with a positive mindset, I think, because we had won several times for, seems like, the first time in a long time, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Of course, this is Bernard Longer, playing in his sixth Ryder Cup. We felt like they probably had more pressure than we did because they hadn't won uh, in a while and they were playing at home. You know, the public was wondering what's going on with the U.S. team and that kind of thing. So we certainly felt, even though we had won it the last few times, that we were probably the underdog playing on American soil and that there was more pressure on the Americans than on us. One of the key members of the U.S. side during this era was Lanny Watkins. Already a seasoned veteran, he brought a 15-9-1 record into the 91 event, which was the seventh team that he had played on. There was no question. We had heard it, and we had heard it, and we had heard it. Plus, the Europeans had had a run of winning the Masters with everything from uh, Woosnam in 91, and you had Faldo, and you had Langer, uh, Sandy Lyle. So they had come over here and won kind of our biggest prize, if you will. That coupled with this, their success in the Ryder Cup, yeah, we wanted it and we wanted it badly. Corey Pavin would be playing in his first Ryder Cup for the American side. Every putt meant everything and every shot meant everything. It seemed like it was everything was amplified a hundred times. Mark Kalkovecchia playing in his third Ryder Cup. I think that was the very first Ryder Cup that it became urgent for the United States to win it back. So, and I and I think our crowd, the crowds that were there, felt the same way that. You know, that was a Ryder Cup that we needed to win desperately. Bernard Gallagher noted in his book, Dave has not changed much since the days when we were on opposing Ryder Cup sides. He is a really nice fellow, but underneath there's always been a tough competitor, and I was left in no two minds on my trip to Kiowa that he was desperate to lead his cup team to victory. I mean, desperate. He also noted, You could not help but feel the Americans were so pumped up about the whole thing that if their team did lose, the nation would be devastated. After all the preparation they put in, after all Dave Stockton's efforts to create the kind of team spirit the Europeans had enjoyed in 1985, 1987, and 1989, to lose would be nothing short of a national disaster for them. A 12,000-square-foot media center was constructed to house 700 accredited journalists, blowing away any previous record for any golf event. Andy O'Brien, the manager of media relations for the PGA of America, noted that, quote, this was the most extensively covered sporting event over three days in history. Almost two billion people around the world will have the opportunity to watch this year's Ryder Cup. But before the week had even come close to beginning, a major curveball was thrown at U.S. team captain Dave Stockton. First, when they announced me as captain, I thought I was going to be a PGA West. And when the PGA came up with a television contract, so it's going to be the first one that's going to be televised wall-to-wall, they needed a three-hour time change. They had to find something on the East Coast. Did you catch that? Not only had the Ryder Cup location been changed, the golf course wasn't even built yet. About eight and a half months before the actual matches, early in the year, I, Kathy and I were there with Pete Dye riding around what was going to be Kiowa. Well, at that point, there wasn't any grass on the golf course. And I'm looking at him going, how is this going to be ready in eight or nine months? 
I mean, I, I was absolutely totally flabbergasted. You know, there's no permanent clubhouse yet. There's nothing. I mean, it was strictly what was going on in, in Pete's mind and what he was putting together. You know, I, I was shocked. As mentioned at the top of the show, one of my sources for this podcast is Kurt Sampson's book, The War by the Shore, the incomparable drama of the 1991 Ryder Cup. In this book, he details the following, and as you might guess, the situation is complicated. In 1974, Kiowa was purchased by Kuwait Investment Company. In 1988, it was sold to the Kiowa Resort Association, who spun off the three existing golf courses and the ground for the proposed fourth. The buyer was real estate developer Landmark Land. Landmark had a deal in place with the PGA of America to host the 91 Ryder Cup at another one of their properties, PGA West. But after the 1987 Bob Hope, tour pros circulated a petition to never have the Hope there again. After Landmark acquired Kiowa, they announced that they had changed their minds on the Ryder Cup location and it would be held on a golf course that did not exist yet. While the TV window is often cited as the reason for the switch, in some circles it is believed that Landmark's key executives knew what they had on their hands with the impending drama of the 91 Ryder Cup, and they could instantly bring fame and popularity to their brand new property. On the same weekend that the 89 Ryder Cup was being contested at the Belfry, Hurricane Hugo laid waste to the Charleston area. The damage was significant for many residents, but specific to Kiowa, about three months of prep work was undone. Kiowa was already hard to get to, and fallen trees had blocked roads, and previously shaped areas of the golf course were completely reshapen. No one could get on or off the island except by boat. The director of golf management at Kiowa noted that the hurricane actually made it easier to build the ocean course. No one had time to worry about what was going on out there. The whole county was torn to hell. They, they were working at night, a lot at night, to, to move stuff, get, get this thing completed. And as you might expect, there were significant environmental concerns with building this golf course. Here's the full passage from Samson's book. With no one telling him not to, Dye created his own dunes and lagoons, pushed and dug the silty sand the way he saw fit, and devised an ingenious system of underground basins that caught and recirculated the water and chemicals used on the course, thus preventing any wetland contamination. His right-hand man, Jason McCoy, came up with a way to restore vegetation to the denuded dunes. By injecting water and fertilizer directly into the mounds of sand, sea oats and beach grass were successfully transplanted in mass for the first time. It wasn't that Dye was a poor steward of the environment, and the weeks of working at night were not necessarily indications of skullduggery. He was just a man on a mission, with a very big clock ticking, and input from well-meaning bureaucrats would have only slowed him down. It's a wonderful Ryder Cup venue. You know, it was so rough at, at that time when they first, uh, it was so new. That's Jim Moriarty again, and he had this to share about the unique situation. I went down there to do Pete Dye's portrait out on the land where he was going to build the golf course because they hadn't done a thing, you know, not a thing. And Pete and I and one of his guys who was the only on-site guy there, there was a trailer, and he was the only on-site person. Pete and I and this guy went out into the dunes to take Pete's picture. And the guy brought a pistol with him because there were so many snakes. After the hurricane, you know, the, everything is disturbed, and there were so many snakes around and stuff that he he carried a pistol with him when he went out on the went out on the property. So we did the photograph and we came back and Pete's sitting in the trailer and he looks at his guy and he says, well, you know, have you got, uh, have you got any heavy equipment lined up? And, the, and he said, well, no, you know, I was kind of waiting to talk to you, Pete. And Pete goes, God damn it. And he grabs the telephone book and he, and he leaps through the yellow pages and he goes to like Bob's bulldozer or whatever it is. And he calls up Bob and he says, Bob, <laughs> 
get your bulldozer out here on Monday morning. And, and so he just rounded up whatever equipment he could, and, and they, they just started digging. So far, we've got a tight timeline, an already sensitive landscape, and a hurricane. Here's another example of the bureaucratic headache. It was amazing what he was able to do. Pete told me he had to deal with 11 governmental agencies to get permits to work on that land. And there was a, an old logging dam that had been created. And Pete wanted to take a little bit of marshland, a few acres of marshland, and use it for the golf course. And, of course, there was this, this huge uproar from the marshland people. And Pete said, well, all right, I tell you what, you give me this, you know, 10 acres of marsh, whatever it was. And he said, I'll give you back 100 acres of marsh. How about that? And the guy said, well, okay. And so Pete took a bulldozer, broke that log, <laughs> that old lumber dam that had been built out there, and restored about 100 acres of, of marsh so that he could get the 10 acres that he wanted. 14 miles of underground pipes catch the water underneath the green grass and recycle up to 300,000 gallons of water per day. The golf course hosting the Ryder Cup usually takes a bit of a backseat to the competition, but this course was different than pretty much anything else in the world to that point. Dave Stockton had a good plan going in. We went and played the course before it even opened, and we're like, holy, you know, what have we got here? So it was just uh, from a challenge perspective. It was challenging. Situated on the easternmost point of Kiowa Island, the ocean course has the most seaside holes in the northern hemisphere, with 10 holes along the Atlantic and the other eight running parallel to those on the inland side. The course is elevated to provide some views of the ocean, which also exposes it to the winds off the ocean. Gallagher would later say, I must say I was disappointed that the PGA of America had gone to Kiowa rather than to one of the more established courses in the States, of which there are so many. There were commercial considerations to take into account, but Kiowa was not the best choice. When you look around America and see how many championship courses there are with superb hotel accommodations close by, you have to question the decision to choose a course for the match on an island with difficult access and limited facilities. End quote. The players were staying in villas on the island, though Gallagher made sure to note in his book that the European villas were not as nice as the American ones. The first time I saw Kiowa, I thought the PGA of America was trying to pull a joke on us. <laughs> there weren't any roads, no cart paths, no clubhouse. To get out there, you had to just drive down a sandy road through the bushes. And this was six months before the Ryder Cup. And I thought to myself, there's no possible way they can have a Ryder Cup here. You know, the Kia was so weird. You know, there wasn't even a clubhouse for us. There was trailers, two temporary trailers. Yeah, they, they set up some portable trailers for us. That was our, uh, our locker room. We didn't really have a team room or anything at the golf course. Both teams were just, them caddies were just all in portable trailers that were just uh, literally sitting there in the sand. You really better hit the ball straight. The fairways, while they weren't terribly narrow, they only went as far as the fairway because there was no rough. It was sand. It just went from fairway, grass, sand. It looked like a link-type setting, but it wasn't really a link course. So it was unique in that regard. But uh, as we played a couple of practice rounds and, and felt like we're getting the hang of it. It was also just a matter of how much the wind would blow because the wind would make that course very difficult and it, it proved so on the certain days of the competition when it got really windy. David Faraday noted that the course is not like something in Ireland or Scotland. It's like something from Mars. Ian Woosdom said, I don't like walking around it. As I finally got out there and played the course, I kind of thought the same thing, like, where are the people going to walk? How are they going to get spectators around here? It's just a big, giant sand pit. A photographer from London described it as dreadful. 
I've never worked on anything like it before, and I hope I never do again. It's very dramatic, and you get some great pictures, but it's just too physically demanding. I can remember Olaf Fable's mother, who walked 36 holes a day, had blisters all over her feet because none of the sand dunes were solidified. Every time you took a step, you're slipping unless you're on some of the level shell cart path-like stuff that they had. And that's just the logistical concerns. The players were also quick to note just how difficult the golf course was to play. Here's Hale Irwin. Pete had his way of making those second shots into the greens, or third shots in par five for that matter. Very interesting. Uh, very difficult to get it close to the hole on many occasions. So when the wind came up, it was really hard. And what was especially difficult was the finishing stretch. Here's Corey Pavin. But when we got up there for the matches, the wind started blowing. And it was blowing, I guess, from the north or northeast. And the hard part about that wind, besides just the wind itself, was the last, you know, five holes or four holes, whatever it is, come into the wind and left to right, which is the hardest wind to play in as a right-handed golfer. Despite the extreme logistical challenges, the golf course was ready in time to Dave Stockton's surprise. I was shocked at the condition they did get the golf course in when we showed up there in September. Throughout history, players who have teed it up in Ryder Cups have noted how different it is playing for a team and playing for your country. The nerves are incomparable to a normal golf tournament. Couple those nerves with what might be the most difficult golf course in the world, and you've got an entirely different playing field for this competition. And this factor would rear its head in the deciding moments, as the result was more defined by the agony of failure than it was the triumph of victory that spectating on the course was difficult. And spectating on that course, it was just as difficult when the PGA went there. It's a hard walk for spectators. But for the Ryder Cup itself, and for the playing of the Ryder Cup, it was wonderful. It's such a, a risk-reward golf course, you know, and, and you can take your chances and, you know, you can make an eight and you just lose the hole. It really, it really was terrific for a match play tournament. At this time, the European Tour's qualification for the Ryder Cup was simple. The top nine of the European Tour money list were automatically penciled into the team. This included Seve Ballesteros playing in his sixth Ryder Cup, Colin Montgomery in his first, Stephen Richardson in his first, the number one player in the world, Ian Woosnam, playing in his fifth, Sam Torrance in his sixth, Bernard Longer in his sixth, and rookies Paul Broadhurst, David Faraday, and David Guilford. Jose Maria Olathebel and Nick Faldo were ranked second and third in the world, yet were not automatic qualifiers. They were easily chosen as captain's picks, along with veteran Mark James rounding out the squad. The team was top-heavy, with numbers 1, 2, 3, and 5 in the world leading the charge. Bernard Longer was also ranked ninth in the world, but no one else on the team ranked in the top 30, with Paul Broadhurst and David Guilford bringing up the rear at 93rd and 99th, respectively. Here's European team member Paul Broadhurst. It was only the, the really top end of the Ryder Cup team that were traveling over to the States, what we call our big five or big six, the likes of Faldo, Woosnam, Langer, Seve, Alathabal, they were all coming over to the States and playing in all the majors. But some of the lesser players, some of the rookies, you know, we were just used to playing in Europe. So we didn't, didn't mix with the Americans uh, too often. Yeah, that, that's a big difference to the PGA Tour and the European Tour nowadays, where all the players are playing in these world events and majors. And, you know, a lot of the European Tour players... Uh, are based on the PGA Tour nowadays, so it, it was a lot different back then. The U.S. side may not have had the power at the top that the Euros had, but their depth was considerable. The automatic qualifiers included Fred Couples, Payne Stewart, Lanny Watkins, Hale Irwin, Paul Azinger, Corey Pavin, 
Mark O'Meara, Mark Kalkovecchia, Wayne Levy, and Steve Pate. Paven, Levy, and Pate were the only rookies among the automatic qualifiers. Here's Mark Kalkovecchia. Most of us on the team in, in 91 were on the team in 89 where we uh, more or less blew it. And I was one of the guys that hit it in the water on 18. There were four of us. And uh, we ended up tying 14 to 14, which you know meant that they kept the cup because they won it the year before at Muirfield Village. We were still a little bit upset about that. We definitely should have won that one. And here's Captain Dave Stockton on how he came up with his final two team members. I was looking at four individuals in my own mind. I was looking at the two that I did pick, Raymond Floyd and Chip Beck, but also was looking at Tom Watson and Tom Kite. How they were picked, I basically canvassed the, some of the head guys on my team, Payne Stewart, Dale Irwin, Lanny Watkins, key guys that I knew were going to play a major part in being the solid backbone of the team. And I told them that I was leaning toward Floyd because I wanted to I wanted, that was the one pick I really wanted because I wanted a pair of Floyd, Fred Couples, who I thought was going to be an unbelievably good player and just didn't have the confidence yet that I thought he, he, he deserved to have. And so I told the guys, that's who I want to get, but what do you guys think about the other three? And their conversation, so I said, I don't have to play with them. You're the ones that have to play with them. And it turned out that Azinger was another key one that I talked to, and it turned out when they decided they would rather have Beck that uh, there was another pairing that I had made. Little did I know that all they were going to draw was Ballesteros for three out of the four matches. Gallagher wrote his thoughts on the selection in his book, saying, quote, This was a decision that I am sure disappointed Jack Nicholas, who had indicated he was available, devastated Kite, and came as a body blow to Tim Simpson and Tom Watson, the other candidates. As far as Nicholas was concerned, there was no question that he had been passed over because the American players did not want him on the team. There was a time when having Jack Nicholas on the U.S. side scared our players. In 1991, selecting Nicholas would have scared the American players more than us. The Americans would have been more intimidated by Jack's presence than our fellows would have been. The European team arrived into Charleston rapidly, thanks to their supersonic transport. After the brief three-and-a-half-hour flight from London, Concord stopped in New York to refuel and was off to Charleston. Gallagher requested a flyover of the ocean course at Kiowa on the way. The players and caddies peered out the window, amazed at the course's proximity to the ocean. And from an aerial perspective, the fairways looked like they were built out into the ocean. But when the pilot flipped the toggle to lower the landing gear, it didn't. A wheel was stuck. Everyone on board endured a few moments of anxiety as the jet continued to circle. A member of the flight crew lifted the carpet and forced the gear down manually. Here's David Faraday discussing Concord on Golf Channel. I'm not sure even that I enjoyed the one Ryder Cup that I did play in, but I'm enjoying the fact that I did play in it. It's kind of like going to the gym, you know, it's nice to have done. I remember the excitement of being picked, getting on Concord in London with the rest of the team and my family, uh, my son Jay in the cockpit on takeoff, landing in Charleston. We'd flown across the Atlantic, took about three hours, and uh, we landed in Charleston and there was... Uh, the, the whole airport was surrounded by people. They were hanging off the perimeter fences. There were so many people I couldn't believe it. And I turned to my friend, Sam Torrance, whom I, I played with in the Ryder Cup and traveled with for so many years. I said, Sam, I can't believe how big this event is. It's, uh, you know, all of these people have shown up to see us. He says, they're here to see the plane, you idiot. Let's take a quick break to check in with our friends at Precision Pro Golf. You've heard us talk a lot about their rangefinders, how trustworthy they are, how great the features are, the pulse vibration, 
the attachments that go right there on your card, a very crystal clear display. You got slope adjusted distances on there, target lock. Our listeners can add the NX9 slope to their golf bag for $20 off if you use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout. Again, it's $20 off their most advanced rangefinder, the NX9 slope. Not only is it a great rangefinder that you can trust under the gun, but Precision Pro offers the best warranty and customer service in the business. First, they have real customer service. It's not just an email. If you call, someone answers. It's a real person who is a golfer themselves, and it's their mission to help you with their question. Plus, it's the only rangefinder that comes with lifetime battery replacement. So add the NX9 slope to your bag. Go to precisionprogolf.com. Coupon code no laying up at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 slope. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get back to the podcast. Captain Stockton was there to greet the European team, a move that impressed Gallagher. But the goodwill earned from that gesture was short-lived. David Faraday and his teammates were walking into a situation in an atmosphere that was completely different than any Ryder Cup to date. Here's Paul Broadhurst. I guess I didn't really know what to expect, you know, being my first Ryder Cup. I mean, what, what transpired was obviously, I guess, a little different to what I was expecting. Faraday was telling me, he said he's in the team room. And somebody comes up behind him. He doesn't know who it is. And he starts rubbing his shoulders. And Sevy's rubbing his shoulders. And he looks at me and says, are you nervous? And Faraday says, yeah, I'm nervous. And Sevy says, me too. He says, I sheet myself this event. The 91 Ryder Cup has been memorialized as the war on the shore or the war by the shore, depending on who you ask. And that name can be traced to significant world affairs in 1991. In August of that year, a failed coup in the USSR essentially ended the Cold War. And the previous winter was marked by the success of the Persian Gulf War, where a U.S.-led coalition drove the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. It was considered a great success for the U.S., and that enthusiasm spilled over. Kiowa Island is surrounded by military presence, between a naval base, an air force base, and many retired military. One of the biggest things, as I recall, that motivational in a, in a way, was we were uh, involved in the, in the Gulf War. The United States was involved in the Gulf War. For whatever reason, that seemed to surface the patriotism in this country that we had not had in quite a long time. And I think that spilled over into the, the golf, the, the feelings amongst the American players. And I cannot speak to the Europeans, but they certainly had a stake in that as well. It was quite turbulent times, you know, around the world. You know, we, knew, we didn't know what was going to happen with the Gulf War you know, if it was going to escalate, what was going to happen with it. So it kind of brought us together, both sides, in a way. Thorman Norman Schwarzkopf, right? There was that jingoistic, really, in a lot of respects, kind of patriotism because of the sort of juggernaut of what that Gulf War was. Well, the Gulf War just happened. You know, there were some camouflage hats and stuff. Being, I didn't wear any of that. I, I just... I felt like the, what those guys did was way more important and more significant than playing a golf match. So I just, I didn't partake of that, okay? That was everybody to his own feelings. But uh, I was there to play golf and uh, not make any kind of statement along those lines. There were some guys who took it to extremes. I wasn't one of them. We were intent, uh, not just in, in in the sense of our golf, but I think intent in the sense of a national spirit. Probably hyping the interest in the event, but at the end of the day, probably to the detriment of the Ryder Cup as a whole. I, 
And I'm, I would guess that, that some of the players in it, you know, felt the same way, that, was, that it got a little bit over the top. And I always think about uh, Marv Levy from the Buffalo Bills, you know, when he was going back, you know, he went to so many consecutive Super Bowls, and he was going back, and some interviewer said, uh, uh, Marv, is this a must-win situation? And, and Levy, who was a, a, a sort of a closet historian, looked at him, he said, must-win situation? He said, this is a football game. World War II was a must-win situation. The Europeans definitely took notice. Yeah, I thought it was weird uh, to read headlines in the magazines and papers and even on the news or something saying the war on the shores. Clearly, you know, we felt golf is so far removed from a war. We're, yes, we're competing for the Ryder Cup, which was brought into the world by... Samuel Ryder to enhance the friendship between or have a friendly competition in a sense between the British and the Americans at the time, which then became Europe against America. So it was not about war and killing and hurting and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was very strange for us and kind of shocking. Colin Montgomery declined the interview request for this podcast. But he's quoted as saying, when Pavin and Pate emerged in Desert Storm hats, that was the end. Were they completely oblivious to the fact that we had troops over in the Gulf too? Chip Beck was a part of the U.S. team in 1989, and here's his interpretation of the buildup and the spillover into 91. What was so interesting about the lead-up and what made this so contentious was I felt like the Europeans had a hard time unifying their team in 89. I don't know why it was, but it seemed like Sandy Lyle didn't have a lot of admiration for Nick Faldo. It seemed like they, they had a lot of contention amongst the different nationalities of their team. It just felt that way to me. I hate to say that. And then once the Gulf War hit, his theory. I think everybody loved to gang up on the Americans. And it, everybody ganged up on us. And it was easy for them to unify their team against the Americans. That's the way I felt about it. And I just remember thinking, wow, they all hate us, you know, whereas I'd never felt that before. Bernard Gallagher has said a lot about the 91 Ryder Cup over the years. I reached out requesting an interview for this podcast. He replied saying, I really feel over the years I've said enough about the 91 Ryder Cup. Therefore, sorry, but I wish to decline your kind invitation to be interviewed. In a 2012 Golf Digest article, Bernard Gallagher is quoted as saying, Still, I was surprised when Corey Pavin appeared on the first tee wearing his battle fatigue hat. I felt that that was rude and unnecessary. In his autobiography, Seve wrote, David Stockton, the American captain, and several of the players acted in the most regrettable fashion, as if winning was a matter of life and death. At the opening ceremonies on Thursday, four F-16 jets, all piloted by Desert Storm vets, performed an eardrum-ringing low-altitude flyover, and an 11-minute performance from the 24-man U.S. Marine Corps silent drill platoon ensued. The Europeans were beyond peeved at this point. Sports Illustrated's John Garrity, who covered the ceremony, wrote that the Europeans looked like Soviet dissidents forced to witness a mayday parade of weaponry in Red Square. Despite the underlying current, what gets lost in the history books is that the week did not start contentiously. Here's U.S. Captain Dave Stockton. When we arrived at Kiva, the only night that we didn't have anything going on was on Tuesday night. So I planned to have this cookout. I specifically knew who I wanted invited. I wanted to invite the European team and their families. No PGA officials or officials from their party. And I wanted to do the same. I wanted to have our families, our players, 
no PGA officials. I wanted us to be out there and just have have a good time. And that's what we did. There's no animosity with the players. We live with these guys year-round. That thing on Tuesday night made me feel that was the highlight for me of the week because we got together, talked, we're wearing shorts, drinking some beers, just having a good time. But on the way to the Wednesday night gala dinner, all hell broke loose. We had seven limos, I believe. And we got there to this convention deal, the center where the party's going to be, and I'm missing four of my of my eight guys, of my 12 guys. What I didn't know is the third and fourth limos ran together. That accident happened because of Faraday's wife. She distracted the driver, and it was raining, and she grabbed him or something by the shoulder. He slammed on brakes. Well, then three more cars went boom, boom, boom. Wow. I never knew that detail. Oh, yes, David. I mean, you, of course it goes back to Faraday. What do you expect? <laughs> Steve Tate was seriously hurt, about a 16-inch bruise across his sternum, and where he'd flown in the limo and hit the corner of the bar that was in the limo. I was just shell-shocked. Here's Mark Kalkovecchia. You know, Steve Pate went flying and got uh, got really banged up, and I saw what his rib, rib cage looked like the next morning, and it was a shade of green and purple, and there was just literally no way he could play. So This would throw an enormous wrench in the plans for Captain Stockton. And the only reason in my mind the matches were that close because I was going to put Pate and Pavin, my two UCLA Bruins, put them together, and I don't think they'd have lost a point. Pate was playing better than anybody on the team. I was supposed to play with Steve Pate the first day and the second day, and he couldn't play the first day. There's just no way. And I, I couldn't even believe he played on Saturday. Here's Bernard Gallagher, again to Golf Digest in 2012. The tournament dinner Wednesday night was a farce in more ways than one. First, there was a car crash on the way to Charleston. The Americans treated it like there had been a death. Then Steve Pate walked in, having only suffered a few bruises. End quote. Brett Fisher, the physiotherapist for the U.S. team, noted that the accident was even more severe than the Americans insinuated. Both Corey Pavin and Payne Stewart had whiplash injuries to the neck, but didn't want to be distractions. Pate could not hide his injuries. We really kind of were down to 11 players, and that was it. Brings back sore memories of that day. I mean, it just it was, it was something that shouldn't have happened, and it did, and it really hurt the team. The accident would have a significant downstream effect on the matches. But you're play, taking not necessarily the biggest name, but you're taking the guy that's playing the best. And I had him paired with Pavin, and I'd I'd paired my my guys together psychologically. And Pavin has a unique game. I mean, he's he's not a long hitter; he's a fighter. And Pate's more, you know, let it go and call him the volcano or something. He's got a temperament to him, but he was ready to play that week. And it just took, okay, here's my number one player, proceed, and okay, you can't play. I mean, that's all. You, you could, it was totally devastating to me because it, it affected my pairing. That's what it was. I mean, I only got one single match, so that's fine. That's on Sunday. But I'm, I'm going to use Peyton Taven all four matches as I was going to play Couples and Floyd and Peyton and Azinger and Beck. So I've got three of my four teams basically set for at least three or out of the four matches on Friday and Saturday, and now I'm I'm losing one-third. And it just, it, it, it not only knocked Pate out, but it knocked Haven out, and I had to put him with people that he hadn't been used to playing practice rounds with. The car accident was not the only fireworks that were set off that night. Well, it's the PG of America doing a highlight tape, and it's pretty much all American players and not many Europeans. So uh, here again... Us as players, we don't have anything to do with that, but it's, you know, somebody from the PR department of the PGA took it 
you know, to a, a new level. You know, whether they were trying to pump us up or piss them off, I don't know. But it was, uh, it, it did a little bit of both. It was very noticeably lopsided. You know, at the time we had many major winners and we were actually dominating world golf uh, to some extent, you know, with Debbie and Saldo and Lyle Wisnam, myself, Olazabal, they were some of the best players in the world. And then to watch that video was quite blatant in, into our face. You know, everybody noticed. We were slighted, and, but, you know, we took notice of it and we said, well, we'll let our clubs do the talking. Yeah, it didn't go down too well. I mean, we had to restrain uh, Ken Schofield, our uh, CEO at the time. He really was um, miffed about it. He wanted to get up on stage and have a have, a, have his say there and then, but we had to hold him down. But uh, it was it was stranger, something like the history of the Ryder Cup, and it, all we all we saw was uh, American players. So that was obviously a, to try and, and rub the Europeans up the wrong way. Obviously, Bernard Gallagher quote. The film they showed at the dinner was a joke. All they showed were Americans hitting shots. Ken Schofield, then the executive director of the European tour, was all for walking out, but we stayed to the end. End quote. Dave Stockton was mortified. I worked really hard for two years not to give the Europeans any bullet, bulletin board material. Be a good host. And they turned this video on about the Europeans and the Americans. And in my mind, the Europeans version ran for two minutes and ours ran for 20. I'm sitting there shell-shocked. I've got two of my guys that are in the hospital. Floyd and Tate are being checked out, Tate being the most serious. It was a disaster. In fact, they've now canceled having that gala dinner. You know, we're trying to we're trying to play our best golf, and yet we're going to drive an hour in a limo on a rainy night and then to show a, a production on the screen that just diminished the Europeans terribly. Again, Gallagher, quote, During the opening ceremony, President Bush appeared on television saying he was hoping for an American victory, which is something you just don't say at a Ryder Cup. Vice President Dan Quayle also came to the matches. It was undignified in many ways. We tried to maintain our composure in spite all this and deal with it as best we could. The following is from a 2004 article in The Guardian. As Gallagher suggested, the 1991 tournament swiftly became both an amusing and unpleasant insight into how America behaves with its back against the wall. It was like that World Wrestling Federation stuff on television where you have the bad guys and the good guys, said Gallagher. We were the bad guys. When the Americans apply themselves to winning something as seriously as they have the Ryder Cup, you know you have to cope with a very ruthless animal. Another quote, It was the first time I remember the crowd getting so involved to such a degree. They booed when we hold putts and cheered when we missed. The whole atmosphere was very unfriendly and it got very political. And lastly from Gallagher, quote, American fans are naturally boisterous and jumpy and generally lack the sophistication of the British fan except when riled, end quote. I went back to look at highlights from the 1989 event at the Belfry just to put Gallagher's claim to test. It does not hold up. Indeed, there are many clips of British fans cheering as American putts failed to fall. The pairings were set for Friday morning foursomes at the opening ceremonies the night before. Steve Pate's injury had thrown a giant wrench in the plans of Captain Stockton. Wayne Levy was playing poorly, and Stockton was not in any hurry to put him out there. Mark O'Meara's back was acting up. Both O'Meara and Payne declined to be paired with Hale Irwin, which irked Lanny. He remarked, What wimps! I told them, He'll be on your team! What have you got to worry about? So I said, I'll take him. Shit! Who wouldn't want to play with Hale Irwin? End quote. The first matchout would be Paul Azinger and Chip Beck versus Seve Ballesteros and Jose Maria Olothabal. 
the Americans have had some great Ryder Cup players. We surely have, and, and great champions. But I don't think there's ever been anybody that was as magnificent in a Ryder Cup as Seve was. They were followed by Raymond Floyd and Fred Couples versus Bernard Longer and Mark James. Lanny Watkins and Hale Irwin drew David Guilford and Colin Montgomery. And Payne Stewart and Mark Kalkovecchia went up against Nick Faldo and Ian Woosnam. Here's Paul Broadhurst on how that day started. It was the first morning, and the local radio station in Charleston rang my room at 5.30 in the morning uh, and announced that they were part of the anti-European Ryder Cup team. And uh, little did they realise that you know, the first tee-off was 7.30, so we were up at 5 every morning. But, uh, yeah, that was a, a little introduction to uh, the Ryder Cup. You know, there were things that happened. Calls to the European team that shouldn't have happened by people in the middle of the night. The crowds were out in full force on this Friday morning. Here's Lanny Watkins on the atmosphere. And I think the, the venue attributed to that as well because it wasn't the kind of course it was easy to follow. So groups of people camped out, in play, like on sand dunes. It'd be a whole, it'd be a thousand Europeans over here and a thousand Americans over there, and they started yelling at each other. So it was a lot of that going on. And it wasn't all one-sided. I mean, it, I always found it interesting that you know, when we played over there, we can get booed and whatever. And I've been booed when I was introducing the first tee at the Belfry. And we don't complain. I never complained about that. I always took it as a badge of honor, okay? But they come over here and play, and if it happens over here, they all, they're always very upset about it, even if they're winning. So I, I never quite got that. So, you know, it's just – but then again, they had Seve involved. And with Seve, there was always an issue. The instigator, the antagonizer, he was everything. He had to be in the middle of everybody's business. And there it is. The very first match of the 29th Ryder Cup popped off by the time it hit the turn. Here's Corey Pavin. The Seve Jose Paul Chip match was the first morning, and I was sitting out the first morning. Captain Stockton just told us the night before is if there's any any issue with rules, is you know, always talk to the the official that's with the group. You know, don't talk to the other players, you know, go through the official. And I remember turning the TV on and, and I saw Paul and Sevy yapping at each other and going back and forth. I didn't know what was really going on at the time. One of the most well-known incidents from the 91 Ryder Cup was a rules controversy involving Paul Azinger and the king of gamesmanship, Sevy. What the things he did would probably tick us off so much that, you know, we would get more upset at, at what was happening. And you get more defensive on stuff. So there's no question, you know, that, I mean, I think he was, if there had to be an antagonist going back in all the Ryder Cups and when everything started, I think the arrow points, you know, directly at Seve and no one else. What Lanny said is correct. It was one of those things. I mean, people, different people do different things. And South Terrace was tough to play with. He could get under your skin with little things he might say, something he might do on the golf course. He might challenge a situation as far as rules go. Just didn't quite know what you're going to get from Seve. I think everybody in our team room would have had, as you suggest or ask, which one would it be? It probably would have been Seve. Hale Irwin himself had previous run-ins with Seve. I had had something with with Seve many years ago. We were playing in the World Match Play in in Wentworth, and he was quite a young player just starting out in Europe with the new future of Europe. This was the year that Europe was experimenting with tapping down spike marks, which were defined as an uplifted tuft of grass. Well, these are 36 hole matches, and we're the first match out, so there really are no spike marks. But Seve's tapping all over the place, and I, I, I'm, I'm really kind of 
wondering what this is all about. And so on the 18th hole, he had his hand behind the ball in the rough. And the referee looked at me and he said, you can call that on him if you want to. <laughs> I said, no, no I, I, I want to beat him badly, of course. I said, I want to know what a spike mark is. And he said, I thought so. So we went in and at the, the 18-hole break and got a Spanish interpreter. Okay, here it is. Laid it all out. And we get to uh, 16th hole. And say he's got a putt from perhaps 15 feet for a, a birdie and a win on the hole. And, and I'm two up at the time. And he points to spike mark. Well, I looked at it. And I said, I don't know if that's the referee. The referee said, no. He missed the putt and went to the 17th tee and hit it out of bounds. And I, uh, I won that hole as well. So technically, I won three and one. But at the press conference, she indicated to the press that I had gotten favorable treatment from the referee, which was a total joke. That, that was not the case. And then when I asked about my two and one victory, I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty pent up with a little emotion at the time. <laughs> I said, dude, when I won the 17th hole, that's three and one, and you can print it. So those are the kind of things that we as players ran into. They weren't necessarily directed at us personally. That's just the way Stevie was. And another from Lanny Watkins. The second day at the Belfry in the morning, Marco Marinau playing Seve and I think Manuel Panero going down the first hole, best ball. We get on the green, and I've got about a 20, 25-footer for birdie. Seve's about 12 feet. His coin's in my line. I had him move it. I pulled my putt. It hit his coin. It bounced right. It went in the hole. He was livid. You had me. You had me do that on purpose. You had me move my coin so you could make that putt. I said yes. I got right in his face. I said yes, Abby. I'm that blanking good. Don't forget it. And yet another one from Lanny. Tom Lehman was going off first against him, and Curtis Strange and I both got Lehman. And we told him, we said he is going to pull something. Go right back at him. Don't let him get the upper hand. It won't make sense what he's trying to do, but just go right back after him. And he did on the twelfth hole and. Layman went right back after him. Layman beat him. When you talk about the confrontations between Seve and Azinger, that went back a ways. Here's Paul Azinger to take us back to the origin of the scuffle, which took place at the 89 Ryder Cup at the Belfry. Well, see, I draw Seve on Saturday night. And Curtis walks up to me and says, don't let him pull anything on you tomorrow. So my mindset (laughs) shifts. So then we get to uh, the first tee, and Curtis goes off last, and I'm off first. So there's a big gap between those tea times and he comes walking up to me on the first day hey, how you feeling good don't let him pull anything on you today so back then the golf balls were getting shredded by the square grooves mm-hmm. and we were both using square groove wedges we hit irons off the second tee three irons both of us wedge into the green he hit it about 12 feet i hit it about four feet we get up there and he takes his ball and tosses it to his caddy ian and says i take this ball out of play i was like curtis popped in my head you know? <laughs> That's so good. My ball was shredded. I had hair. I used a ping wedge back then, and it really wrecked the golf balls. You could pick my golf ball up by the paint thread that was hanging from it. I can't take it out of play, though. I could rub that paint thing off of there, but I can't take the ball out. So anyway, I just thought he's pulling something right there. And so I looked at his caddy. I asked I said, I need to see that ball. And I looked at it, and I walked over to Seve. And he was already lining up. He just squatted down, and he just looked up at me like that. And he's, I said... I don't think he can take this ball out. I said, look at mine. It looks just as bad. He goes, the European rule says this ball is no good. <clears throat> I said, well, in the U.S., you're going to have to play it. I said, maybe we should ask the official. So Annie McPhee came in. He says, I'm sorry, Seve. You have to play this ball. 
Well, the crowd was into it now, and they were jeering me. Sevy mm-hmm. lined that putt up from every direction. I looked at Sevy and I said, I'm sorry, my ball, ball looks just as bad. And Sevy looked at me and he said, no, no, it's okay. If this is the way you want to play today, we can play this way. And I swear, bro, I, my hands do not shake when I play. But at that moment, I was starting to quiver. <laughs> he made the 12 footer. Of course he did. And then as the crowd noise died down, some British guy yelled out, What would you have done with a good ball, Seve? <laughs> and I was thinking, Man, I put my ball down. I was like this. I hit this putt that went in the hole and came right back at me, and the crowd just yelled out. Or they cheered twice as loud sure. when mine missed. And it was really a rough match after that. We went at it. But that wasn't all. During that same match at the Belfry, there was another showdown as Zinger went to take a drop. Before I dropped, I stood up and bumped into Seve. He goes, I want to know right where your ball was. I mean, it was like that out there. <laughs> and I, he, then he grabbed his ball and tried to place it all around. And thank God it didn't stay anywhere. And I had to set mine on a little tuft of grass to get it to stay. And he's like, now you have a perfect lie. Which brings us to the opening match here in 91. And while the showdown on the 10th tee is well known, there's even more context that Zinger has to add. See, I hate that it's remembered for ball compression incident, but that's what it's remembered for. And I got four of those golf balls brand new sitting in my room that I found in my old Ryder Cup bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they took a bad drop on number two that the official let them get away with. They played it. They broke the rule, basically. They hit a ball that they couldn't tell went in the hazard. Then they played a provisional, which is for a lost ball. And then they went back and dropped like the ball, like they knew the ball went in hazard, but they didn't know. And it was controversial, but we won the hole. And then the fourth hole, Sevy hooked it in the junk. And the official yells out, he says, five minutes is up. And then literally within 10 seconds, they found the ball and he let them play it. And I just was ape about that. And Chipper's like, calm down. I said, no, man, he can't do it. So that was how that match started. The contentiousness continued. Azinger stood uncomfortably close to Seve as he played a ball from the rough, implying that he didn't trust the Spaniard to play it as it lies. Seve noted this in Spanish to Jose Maria, also noting, he's very worried I'm going to kick his ass in this match. Remember, this is the first match out on the first day of the Ryder Cup. Very early in the mix, Team Europe trailed in all four matches. It was around this time that Captain Gallagher discovered that his radio was on an open channel and that technically anyone could have been listening in on Team Europe conversations. Bernard Gallagher was concerned that his conversations were being heard by the American captain, Dave Stockton, and obviously he couldn't hear anything that was going on in uh, the U.S. camp. But, uh, yeah, um, again, I wasn't aware of that at the time of the event, but, um, you know, you, you learn things as the years have gone by. Stockton scoffed at that, saying, hell, I can barely turn on the TV, let alone monkey with radio signals but this would play a factor later on. Gallagher also noted that there were issues with the radios in 1987, saying the American radios worked perfectly, and the European ones were either not as strong or not as new and certainly did not work. But now for the showdown. Then on on 10T, they accused us of using the wrong compression ball, which we did. And it was totally my fault. But it was a 90 compression Titleist versus 100 compression Titleist, and we were on the first par 5. Here's how it works. If if the 100 compression Titleist goes off number one, the 100 compression Titleist has to go first off every odd hole the rest of the day. That 90 compression ball, which was red, if it goes off number two, it goes off every even hole the rest of the day. It was the par 5 seventh hole where Azinger and Beck violated this rule. If you hit my ball off the tee, you lay up, I get to hit my ball into the green. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And they caught that, and that's illegal. 
but they didn't call it. It was on seven. Eight, we played normal. Nine, we played normal. So they tried to call us on it, I guess, on 10 T, and we were two up or three up or something. It shook us up. It was ugly. I always wondered how they could tell. How would they even know? I guess it was the color of the ball was different. That's no, just the logo, just the just titleist the... stamp and the number on the ball. How did they notice that? Black or red? <laughs> they heard crazy. us talking about it. Oh, okay. I was free and talk. We were talking about it like yeah. it was a great strat. Boy, aren't we smart? Right. But boy, we butchered it, it because <laughs> if you hit a black ball off the first tee, it's got to be off every odd hole. What's so fascinating is that they just changed the rule, but the previous Ryder Cup. We could switch golf balls up. I could switch on the tee and use Paul's ball, in, or he could use his ball into the green or vice versa. So, for instance, we switched up so Paul could hit his ball into the green on the par five on the third shot or something. And then, and, but we went into number nine, finished the hole, and we were like three up on the match. And then Sebi called the official over and said, you know, they, that we had switched up our golf balls. And Zinger took it as a slight. You mean you're calling me a cheater? No, I'm not calling you a cheater. You just changed balls, and you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> but anyway, Paul was really upset about it, and it took about 10 to 15 minutes to sort through what had actually happened. And in match play, if you don't call it on the whole, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean a thing. It's like it didn't happen. But in Kurt Sampson's book, he notes that there were two rules-related announcements made to the players before the event. One, that the sand on the golf course was all to be played as a waste area. And two, this specific ruling related to the golf ball. Seve brought this to Sam Torrance's attention on the eighth hole. But Gallagher had already turned off his radio upon finding out they were on an open channel and couldn't be reached. So the matter was not brought to the attention of a referee or the Americans in a timely fashion. According to Azinger, the Europeans tried to take yet another bad drop on the ninth hole, and he called for a rules official. A furious Seve finally barked at Azinger, asking him where he wanted him to drop it. The Europeans finished off a front nine forty and headed to the back three down. Gallagher waited behind the ninth and was up to speed on the situation regarding the golf ball switch the Americans had made. They tried to call a penalty on him on the tenth hole that they had, you know, this was the one ball rule was in effect, and somehow they played a ball that wasn't the one they were supposed to play. So Seve thinks he waits and he's going to call like a four-hole penalty on him on the 10th tee. Well, you can only call the one hole he just played. He didn't know the rule, but he tried to think, okay, well, they did it five holes ago. They've been doing it. I'm going to call five holes. As you can tell, the accounts here vary depending on who you ask. Bernard Gallagher said, quote, Paul Azinger didn't help matters. He was such a volatile guy. I know Paul blames Seve for using gamesmanship, but that's ridiculous. To be honest, Paul was the worst for that. He would try anything to win. That was certainly true when it transpired that Paul and Chip Beck were switching balls. It was actually Jose who spotted what they were doing, not Seve. That yeah. little bit of controversy made the Ryder Cup great. It made Actually, Americans really started to care about the Ryder Cup. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I never wanted to rub anybody's nose in anything either, and I just was trying to protect what we were doing. Here's Seve's caddy Billy Foster telling his side of the story. This audio comes from the Golf TV Instagram. So once it came apparent that there was going to be no penalty if Paul all of a sudden his amnesia went... Well, we certainly aren't cheating. <laughs> no, no, well, we don't. It's cheating. It's just part of the rules. It's just it's part of the game, situation. Well, we don't say that. Game. As he walks past me, he mutters, Nice try. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> so as we're walking off the 10th tee, I give Seve a nudge. Not that he needed any nudging. I said, hey, he's just said, nice try. Oh, well, the blood 
went up through his eyeballs and started spewing out of his ears like he was absolutely frothing at the mouth, raging. While Jose Maria and Seve were insistent that the Americans had violated the rule on 7, 8, and 9, the Americans claimed they only violated it on 7. A month later, at the Volvo Masters in Spain, Seve had the following to say, quote, Azinger didn't cheat, but he lied. He said the ball changed only happened once, but we know it happened three times. At first, he denied it completely. Then when he realized they could not lose the hole, he changed his statement. He was the only one on the American team that did not behave in a proper manner. The American team were 11 nice guys and Paul Azinger. Everybody thought I was such a prick at Ryder Cups, but... You know, I just was patriotic and did what I had to do, but I had a heart. Like Zinger says, I take these things personally, Chip. <laughs> I said, I know you do. It's good. <laughs> Here's Captain Stockton's take on the situation. And it was totally our fault. I mean, Azinger should not have played this. They shouldn't, Beck shouldn't have played the, the different ball that they did. Ballesteros should have called it on that hole. And if he'd done, they, they would have won that hole. Ballesteros and the Europeans would have won it. And then we'd have been on. But they'd gone three holes, so there's nothing that could happen. The situation was finally resolved when Gallagher weighed in and told the players to play on. There would be no penalty, but the 1991 Ryder Cup got flipped on its head. Zinger was so upset. I mean, you could his steam was rising out of his ears and nostrils. It was like, wow, this boy. And I'll never forget it. He ran his first putt by probably four feet. It's one of these real tough-looking putts. The slope is right to left, and the, and the grain is to left to right. I had to hit it inside the, the right side of that cup and hope it would stay in there. And it just rode by the edge. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I knew if I didn't make that putt, it, the tide was going to change. Chip Beck's gut feeling was right. The Europeans found the fairway on the 12th, and as Azinger took the club back, Seve noticeably coughed. Azinger backed off and shot an icy stare at the Spaniard. The Europeans would go on to win the hole. Seve later noted, I often cough and sneeze because I have allergies, but Azinger looked at me as if I'd done it on purpose. He was kind of using it as a ploy to get himself going one way or another, whether you know you look at it as a good thing or a bad thing, it doesn't matter, but that's what he was trying to do, was to get, you know, change the momentum of the match. And it seemed to have worked because uh, you know, they ended up coming back, Seve and Jose, and winning that match. Seve was doing a little gamesmanship, and it ended up, you know, working out for their favor. I, I mean, Seve made about a forty-footer on the seventeenth hole to win the match. It was like, man, it broke my heart, broke his heart too. But they performed miracles after that to beat us. Billy Foster said, "I was holding the pin when Seve made a forty-footer on the seventeenth to finish the match. The message: Don't fuck with the Spaniards." Years later, Azinger would say, "Quote." The fact is, Seve and Jose were better than Chip and I. That's all there is to it. Back then, I didn't like Seve or Ollie. I matured over the years, and eventually that changed. Now I look back, and it's a total pleasure to reflect on how good they were. They were as passionate about their homeland as we were about ours. And the Ryder Cup maybe meant more to them than it meant to us. I've always said that Americans' love for the Ryder Cup is in our heads, but for Europeans, it's in their blood. There's a difference. The Ryder Cup meant everything to them. Had the Europeans not flipped that match, they would have been in a world of trouble. It would be the only point they would earn on Friday morning. Floyd and Couples won 2-1 and one over Langer and James, and Payne and Kalkovecchia won one up over Faldo and Woosnam. Lanny and Irwin won 4-2 and two over David Guilford and Colin Montgomery. Here's Irwin. Hey, Monty was a very difficult player. Whomever he played with, be a very formidable team. Well, Lanny and I beat them, which I thought was really good. It's a good bell 
a ringer for us, uh, the wake-up call, hey, we can, we can compete and play successfully against these guys. Azinger and Beck would not have to wait long before they got another shot at Seve and Olafabel as they drew them that afternoon's four ball. Here's Dave Stockton. I mean, I couldn't figure out how in the heck they're, you know, it's like Bernard Gallagher, their captain, was reading my mind about where I'm putting them because I was moving them around. I didn't want them to be against Balsero. Zinger and I, we were ready to get our, our feet wet and go after those boys again because they were a tough match and they would do anything to win. And we really liked that. I've never seen a, a person that gets so excited like Zinger could. You know, he said, Chip, you think I can knock that driver off the ground and knock it right up? It's about a 10 foot opening in the, in the bunkers. I said, Zinger, you can do anything you want. I think that's a perfect call. Knock it right through there. He'd knock it right in there. <laughs> he, you could just encourage him so much and ride him like a good, like a good stallion. You know, just pump him up. Steve Pate warmed up on Friday morning, but had determined he would be unable to go in the afternoon. Lanny Watkins was paired up with Marco Mira up against Sam Torrance and David Faraday. Corey Pavin and Mark Kalkavecchia went up against Mark James and Stephen Richardson, and Raymond Floyd and Fred Couples drew Nick Faldo and Ian Woosnam. Floyd and Couples quickly put another point on the board for the U.S., and the lead was stretched to 4-1. to one. Faldo and Woosnam struggled with their putters all day, and despite success in previous Ryder Cups, their 0-2 Friday would mean they would go separate ways the following day. But the Euros rallied that afternoon. James and Richardson trounced Pavin and Kalkovecchia 5-4. and four. Coach Stockton had to kind of you know do on the fly, and we hadn't played much together, and, and we were both pretty nervous, and, and we got beat. Bernard Gallagher remarked, quote, Still, I was surprised when Corey Pavin appeared on the first tee wearing his battle fatigue hat. I felt that was rude and unnecessary. Pavin replied, I explained that I was in support of the troops and that it was a coalition effort, and that was all it was about. But people are going to take it the way they want. There was backlash, and I continue to be asked about it to this day. David Faraday was off to a slow start in his first Ryder Cup match and hit one of golf's most embarrassing shots, the fat putt. His putter scuffed the turf before the ball, and the ball rolled like a deflated balloon, came up four feet wide and six feet short. And on the second tee, Torrance put his arm around the shoulders of the younger man. Faraday watched the lips beneath the mustache move. It was a tender moment. If you don't pull yourself together, said Sam, I'm going to join them, and you can play all three of us, you useless bastard. Fast-forwarding to the final green, Faraday and Torrance trailed O'Meara and Watkins by one hole. Faraday lined up his 12-foot par putt and canned it, letting loose a giant fist pump as they eked out a half. Chip Beck and Azinger trailed by one, playing the difficult par 3 17th. Beck stepped up first. The win was, I've never seen a win so dense and so heavy. It just moved that ball, and I think if you cut it a foot, it was going 30 yards right. Bernard Gallagher would say this about his team. I knew how tough it was to concentrate and had been proud of the way the team had gone about their business on the first day when it was clear the American players were whipping up the crowds. That encouragement of the fans to react vociferously would, I knew, get worse as the match progressed, but I was sure we could cope. On Saturday morning, the team of Irwin and Watkins got back together and squared off against Faraday and Torrance. Kalkovecki and Stewart drew James and Richardson. Azinger went out with O'Meara and drew Faldo and Guilford. And in the last match, Ray Floyd and Fred Couples drew the Spaniards, Jose Maria and Seve. Here's Stockton. The interesting thing is when Falsteros got away and he got paired against Floyd on, I think it was Saturday, I just walked up to him and I said, you know, Falsteros had a terrible time you know, this week with his cough, this is to Raymond Floyd. I said, you, you might want to ask him about it because you don't want to hear that cough today. 
And here's Fred Couples relaying the story to David Faraday. Raymond and I played Jose and Seve. And there was a little bit of noise made on the first tee. There really was. Oh, I believe you. <laughs> and then we got to the second hole, and Steve Williams was catting for Raymond. And he, Steve told me to stay back. So Raymond and Seve walked probably 30 yards ahead of me. I don't know where Jose was. And then when he came back, he said, we're all good. That'll never happen again. And I said, you know, I'm like, what'd you say? What'd you say? And he said, I said to him, Seve, you can keep doing what you're doing, but I'm way better at this than you'll ever be. So my suggestion would be to stop. That's what really? he told me. Yes. So it's wow. like, you know, if you want to be a little gamesman, you can do it with Chip Beck and you can do it with Azinger, but not with me. Val <laughs> Steros didn't cough one time. Here's Hale Irwin talking about his dynamic pairing with Lanny Watkins. Well, Lanny Watkins and, and I seem to have shared some successes through the years in other Ryder Cup teams. He's an aggressive player, and I don't want to say I was the manager. I don't mean that at all. I was his team member. But I like to put uh, Lanny's aggressiveness out front. Not that I was the boss, but I, because it's a team effort, I don't mean to sound this way, but I think Lanny could use that, that aggressiveness knowing that there was someone like myself that was behind him because I was probably more of a keep it in play kind of player. Uh, don't take quite the, the risks or the chances or go at every flag the way Lanny might. But bear in mind, Lanny is a major championship winner. He was a heck of a player. So you know, I, I think we just meshed very well on the golf course. O'Meara and Zinger took a hurting to Faldo and Guilford, a pairing that will be criticized. They won seven and six, which was the biggest route in Ryder Cup history. Floyd's intimidation tactics didn't work on the Spaniards, and they lost that match 3-2. and two. Payne and Calc won their match one up when Steven Richardson missed a four-footer on the 18th. So we won both our matches. I remember one hole, I think it was on 13 on, on Saturday. And all I had to do, you know, I had a 10-footer. Payne hit it in there 10 feet, and they'd already hit it in the water and made a bogey. So, all, you know, straight downhill putt. And it was super fast. And Payne comes over to me and says, this is quick. You don't have to hit this very hard. I said, yeah, I, I know, Pards, I got it. And as soon as I hit it, I crushed it. Uh, anyway, it went right in the middle of the hole. If it didn't hit the hole, it was going 10 feet by at least. And Payne just pulled his Kangol Hogan head over his eyes and just shook his head. He never said good pot or anything. And then just turned around and started walking off the back of the green. And I had to walk back to the, uh, the next tee to tee off. And he, he didn't say a word to me for two holes. And the U.S. took a big lead into the afternoon, seven and a half to four and a half. If the fervor of the 1991 Ryder Cup was not yet evident to the viewers at home, it soon would be on Saturday afternoon. President George Bush came onto the screen to introduce the live coverage by saying, Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to tee off this biannual golf classic, the world-famous Ryder Cup. As every weekend golfer with a hard slice knows, the Ryder Cup brings together the best golfers in the United States and Europe. The battle for the cup made this tournament one of golf's most competitive contests. By bringing together nations and people in friendly competition, the Ryder Cup reflects the finest tradition in sports. And while only one team can claim victory, I'll show my patriotic colors for a moment by hoping that the American team brings the cup back to where it belongs, right here in the United States. Thank you and let the round begin. And the NBC monologue was as follows. How did it happen that a friendly golf match has come to this? How did the spirit of innocence and fraternity turn into rampant nationalism and frenzy? When did the metaphors begin to sound more like football and boxing? Indeed, did someone so conservative as Jack Nicklaus actually say that this weekend would be a war? When there is more at stake for a professional golfer than merely playing for a sponsor's money, when the stakes are team and country, 
then maybe Jack Nicholas is right. Maybe this is a war on Kiowa Island, but not a war that we can see because the battle in golf is always internal. The struggle to silence one's body and senses to quiet one's breath and mind. The afternoon four ball session would bring a lineup change. And yes, that is Steve Pate's music. After a warm up on the range, he decided to give it a go. Stockton paired him with Corey Pavin just like he had envisioned. The Langer-Montgomery pairing was also a new one and started on a bizarre note. The following is from Bernard Gallagher's book. Langer walked to his partner's side and asked, How far is this? 126 to the front edge plus 24 yards to the pin, Colin replied, looking at his pin sheet. In other words, 150. Monty felt pleased to be able to give a precise teammate an exact number. Where have you taken the yardage from? Monty pointed at the sprinkler head. Are we talking about the back of the sprinkler head or the front? After a moment of confusion, the circular plastic irrigation cover was only nine inches in diameter. Monty realized that Bernard was not joking. Moments after Colin hit his iron into the green, Mr. German Engineering announced the new rules of the road. Henceforth, only yardage provided by his caddy would be used. Colin and his caddy, Kevin Laffey, would have to consult Pete Coleman for practically every shot. That arrangement made them nervous. Pate and Pavin played spotty and lost their match on the 17th hole. Paul Broadhurst finally got the call that afternoon and paired up with world number one, Ian Woosdom. He surprisingly carried that pairing to a victory over a gassed Paul Azinger and Hale Irwin. Yeah, it had been very difficult for me to just gone in and play the singles, so uh, he'd got to fit me in somewhere. I was fairly pally with Ian Woosnam through a, through a few other guys on tour, DJ Russell and Peter Baker and Martin Pox, and the sort of five of us sort of got on really well on tour. So I knew Woosie reasonably well. There was no talk at the start of the week. I hadn't practiced with Ian Woosnam or anything. It was just... Uh, I think a scenario where I needed to play with someone, and obviously I was I was chuffed a bit playing with Ian Woosnam. He's just won the Masters. He's world number one. Reports swirled earlier in the week that Wayne Levy had not broken 80 in any of the practice rounds, but fatigue was a genuine concern on the American side, and Levy finally came off the bench for the Americans and contributed almost nothing. He didn't make a birdie all day long and didn't help his teammate Lanny Watkins until the 15th hole. Lanny remarked that Stockton's only mistake was not pairing Pate and Levy together and noted they sacrificed two points by not putting them together. Seve and Olathabo went back out for a fourth time, this time against Couples and Stewart. The Spanish pair continued their gamesmanship. With Seve in tight for a birdie on the seventh, Olathabo hit a surprising skull from the sand over the gallery completely. He took his time locating his ball, then took more time to appeal to replace the ball, even if he had holed that fourth shot, that would only have tied Seve, who was 18 inches away from the hole. There was no reason to go through this if not to annoy Fred Couples, who was looking at an eagle putt from just off the green. Jose Maria was still away before playing his fifth, but Seve played first and made his birdie. A bizarre sequence of events. Couples then drained the eagle putt and let loose a vicious fist pump. Couples would also go on to hole a par chip from the sand on the 15th, toss his club emphatically on the ground, then turned to the crowd with both fists raised in the air, pumping them skyward almost as if he was raising the roof. His wife then ran out onto the green to hug him from behind. He quickly dismissed her. The match went all the way to the 18th. NBC ran an hour and 15 minutes long and went commercial free. Bernard Gallagher noted, Winning the 18th would be nice because it would complete the whitewash, something Seve was well aware of despite the fact that scoreboards were few and far between and well below the standard of on-course information we set over here. With the match tied, Olathabel stared at a six-footer as darkness descended on the island. The ball was barely halfway there before Jose Maria fist-pumped and walked it in. Ollie had to make a six-foot putt to have the 18th hole on Saturday. 
um, to send the matches into Sunday Tide. And he made that putt, and then Seve, you know, comes over and shakes his hand, you know, this big, you know, firm handshake. At the sun was, was setting, or, or had even set behind them. And the sky was completely orange. And I got a picture, and a lot of people got a picture, of these two guys, these two Spaniards shaking hands in complete and utter silhouette. Uh, against the against the sky, and uh, and of course their faces because of the, you know because of the contour of their faces and their noses and stuff they're so totally recognizable. It couldn't be any other two people in the whole world. <laughs> After two days, the 29th Ryder Cup was dead even. But for the most part, it was a bit of a feint here, a jab there, a, a wild roundhouse that missed, and then you you kind of get in your clinches and you come away and you say, okay, it's a draw. The third day was going to really set up uh, who was going to be the winner. The first two days of the Ryder Cup uh, are extremely long days. Uh, you know, they start at dawn and they end at dusk, separated by a point. It's, it's, not, it's absolutely nothing. But what you do have in those first two days uh, are all the truly exhilarating team aspects of the event. Those two days are rarely determinative of what happens in the end. But those two days are everything that the Ryder Cup is all about. The order in which captains send out their players for Sunday singles is often easy fodder for media types. The consensus has always been that you want to start strong and finish strong and perhaps do your best to hide your lesser players in the middle. Get some momentum on the board early and have some anchors you can count on near the end. Well, it's pretty simple. Originally, I would have had Calco in one and I would have had Lanny Watkins two, but Lanny was tired and Lanny wanted to go late, which surprised me because I was going to, I would tend to put faster people out front and let them go. And I tended to pair the way most American captains have, and that's to put your three best, three of your best players up front and three of your best players from finishing up. And you kind of protect the guys in the middle. Gallagher bucked this trend hard. What I'm expecting is for Payne Stewart to walk all over somebody I've never hardly met, and David Faraday, Floyd to beat whoever he's playing, and Calc will do the same. He has Montgomery, I believe. But that's what I did. Their captain completely flipped it. He put the weakest ones first and last. Not necessarily last. He had longer against Irwin. But, but he, he put most of his emphasis dead center opposite of me he put his strength in the middle not not on the beginning or the end he sent out nick faldo first who was not playing well and had been zero and three in team play he drew raymond floyd from the u.s side faldo noted it was the most nervous i had ever been i had trouble getting off to sleep and i was pacing around the room at 4 a.m with my heart going flat out i thought i was going to have a heart attack end quote faldo was followed by david faraday and colin montgomery two rookies Faraday drew Payne Stewart, and Monty drew Mark Kalkovecchia. You know, I was excited. I asked Captain Stockton to put me off first just because I'm antsy and I don't like sitting around. And, you know, I just, I'm ready to get after it, and, and I'm a fast player. So I wanted to just get right out, of the, right out of the block and get on with it. Gallagher then buried his Spaniards in the middle, with Olafable going out fourth and Seve seventh. But the U.S. ace, Paul Azinger, also went out fourth, drawing Jose Maria yet again. Steve Pate was out seventh, drawing Seve, which looked like an easy point for the Europeans. And it got worse on the U.S. side. 
Azinger, Payne Stewart, and Chip Beck all got hit with food poisoning. Sunday morning on the range, Steve Pate warned up. Brett Fisher, the physiotherapist on the U.S. side, stood by with Captain Stockton as well. It was not going well. Despite playing in the Saturday afternoon session, he was in no condition to go on Sunday. And then I pulled him out of the matches on Sunday. He couldn't go. A little-known responsibility of a Ryder Cup captain is to set a might, a man in the envelope. This would be the player that would have to sit if a player on the opposing team were to be unable to play. For Europe, that man would be David Guilford. Bernard Gallagher, again to Golf Digest. What was odd was that Steve Pate had already played since the accident. Of course, had Pate not done so and then pulled out of the singles, we would have been awarded a full point. Because Steve was injured before the opening ceremony, they would have had time to replace him with a reserve. I don't want to sound too cynical, but if Steve was fit enough to play on the Saturday, why could he not do the same on Sunday? What upset me most, though, was that I heard nothing from the U.S. officials. The first I knew of the problem was at breakfast on the Sunday morning. I was not impressed. I'm going to read a few more quotes from the Golf Digest 2012 piece. Steve Pate said, I was a no-go for Friday, but felt a little better on Saturday. I went along okay for a while, but I stepped along the side slope of a hollow, and that made the injury worse. I knew when I woke up on Sunday morning I couldn't play. But Gallagher said, In my opinion, it was all a bit overblown. He was fit enough to play. It was unprecedented for the captain of the player who's not injured not to at least have the courtesy to tell the other captain that this is going to happen. Al Mellon, who is Steve Pate's caddy, says, On Sunday, Steve gave it a go, but he couldn't hit the ball 60 yards. He was devastated. He was lined up to play Seve, which is exactly what he wanted. Gallagher again, He didn't have the courtesy to allow me to prepare David Guilford, and that's what really annoyed me about Stockton. Not the players wearing camouflage hats and it being called the war on the shore after the Gulf War and whipping up the fans and all that. David Guilford said, Pate was drawn to play Seve, our best player at the time, so chances were we would win that match. I was drawn against Wayne Levy, who was having trouble hitting his hat that week, so I'm confident I could have beaten him. Ballesteros, scheduled to go out 7th, moved up in the order to play Levy, who lost his only two matches that week and was the only American who failed to score a point. I think from the European point of view, I mean, we were aware that Steve Pate had played on the Saturday afternoon and and was carrying an injury. And I guess we thought Seve would probably beat Steve. And Wayne Levy, you know, with all due respect, was playing pretty poorly. Uh, Dave Guilford... I'm not sure how many points he'd won or whether he'd even won any points, but he was playing well, and we expect that was another game we expected to win in the singers. So to go from possibly two nothing to one and a half half point, that that was a yeah a, a big difference, and, and the way the match finished, it would have made a big difference, obviously. So that was the European point of view that you know we'd perhaps been denied the chance of winning two points and had to settle for for one and a half. Pate's caddy Al Mellon notes, Steve still has problems with his hips from that car wreck. I've worked for him since 1985, and although he's had his moments, that thing had a huge impact on his career. David Guilford said, Mark Kalkovecchia came up to me just before the closing ceremony and said, I'm sorry about today. A few of our guys don't like what happened, which was nice of him. Look, I know Steve Pate had been in an accident and he had bruising, but he did play on the Saturday. And to say that he was appreciably worse on the Sunday would be a very charitable interpretation of Dave Stockton's captaincy. At best, it was ungentlemanly and unsportsmanlike. At worst, it was cheating. Sam Torrance noted in a 2010 Ryder Cup memoir, To this day, I wonder how hurt Pate actually was. I was in one of the cars that bashed into each other, and it wasn't much of a concertina effect at all. In the second round of the four balls, he hit a driver and a five iron to get on in two at the par 5 11th. 
I couldn't get near it in two. To add to our feelings of doubt about the whole thing, it soon emerged that Pate had been drawn to play against Seve, and then Seve found himself against America's weakest player. That was not a good result for us because it was a waste of Seve's point. I reckon anyone on our team could have beaten Levy. We felt it was the Americans who got a half point out of the affair. Recalling September 1991 and September of 2011, Pate shook his head ruefully. It wasn't much of a decision. I couldn't hit a ball more than 40 yards in the air that morning. End quote. He didn't tee it up in another competitive event for six weeks. I don't know. I think, I think Steve would have insisted on playing if he was fit enough, to be honest. And I know he played Saturday afternoon. And I, I honestly can't remember how well he played that on the Saturday afternoon. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Steve wouldn't have just stepped aside. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he'd have wanted to play if he, if he possibly could have done. I, I, personally, I would have you know, died to have played. You know, I would have been um, pressing the captain to allow me to play, even if the captain had said, you know, we want you to take a bit of a dive. You know, you, you've got an injury. We can get away with half a point. But... Uh, I, I obviously, I can't speak for Steve, but I would expect him to have wanted to have played anyway. Following Azinger in the five spot was Corey Pavin, who went up against Stephen Richardson. My nerves were frazzled from the, the get-go. You know, I was I was very nervous, but I was also very focused on what I was doing. So it's a unique situation where you're so nervous, but it also helps you concentrate. The sixth match was the aforementioned Seve versus Wayne Levy mismatch. Chip Beck was out seventh against the number one player in the world, Ian Woosnam. Marco Mira drew Paul Broadhurst. Fred Couples got Sam Torrance. Lanny Watkins against Mark James. And finally, Hale Irwin against Bernhard Longer. Dave Stockton said, and Hale, we want you to bring the ship home. Hale said, I would consider it an honor. And I thought, man, this guy is one tough hombre. I loved it when he said that. I would consider it an honor. In the first match, Nick Faldo disposed of Raymond Floyd two up, Faldo's first point at the 91 Ryder Cup. This was one of only three matches to reach the 18th hole on that Sunday. Keep that one stored away for later. In the second match, David Faraday beat Payne Stewart two and one. Here's Faraday telling the story about what happened between 16 green and 17 tee. He said, The noise at Kiowa was unbelievable. It was desert storm. It was Corey Pavin running out from behind a sandhill like Rommel with his horrible little knotted fist. The crowd was swept up into a frenzy, and I'm trying to get to the 17th when all of a sudden a huge lady marshal gets in front of me and pokes me right here and says, where do you think you're going? What am I, a heavily disguised spectator? I'm wearing Cerise pants for Christ's sake. I'm in a Ryder Cup uniform. I'm on my way to lose my mind. An arm comes across my shoulder, and Payne put his face right here on mine. I can still smell the red man. And I could tell that he was grinning like a bucket of french fries. He says, ma'am, I'd love for you to hold him here, but he's playing against me. And he swept me up onto the tee in his arms like that. Payne really got the Ryder Cup, understood what it was all about. In the third match, Mark Kalkovecchia got out and ran against Colin Montgomery. Played fantastic on the front nine. I was probably shot four or five under, or roughly four under, and I think he was one over. So, I mean, I'm, I'm five up at the turn, and uh, everything is looking great. I hit him on the 10th green and two, par four, and he buried it in the front left bunker. The old don't look ahead strategy did me in there. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going six up here, no problem. And of course he holds it. It was around this time that Kiowa began bucking its head. One of the things that stuck out to me the most in talking with these players almost 30 years later is how distinctly they remember the win. And a constant theme was its direction in the home stretch. Holes six through 13 on that course are all all pretty much go exactly the same direction. 
and the wind was downwind right to left, which is a fader of the ball. It's my favorite wind because I can hit a little fade into the wind and it'll fly dead straight. At any rate, so now we get to 14, switch dead back into the wind, straight in, and quartering left to right, which is my least favorite wind as a fader. They turn back for home after the 13th green, and they have the par 3 14th with bogeys. That hole was playing so hard it was ridiculous. So I'm still four up going to 15th. The 15th is a demanding tee shot with the ocean on the right and the wind into and off the left. 15, I basically hit my tee shot in the ocean, so that's the end of that hole. He is four up with four to go. Uh, and he leaves it to the left side, so Cal Cavecchia well in command of his match with Colin Montgomery. Cal Cavecchia said, I'm going to get rid of all my bad shots on one hole. Monty won the 15th hole with double to Calc's triple. Calc is three up with three to play, needing just one half to put a full point on the board for the U.S. The 16th is a par five. 16, I played great. I hit it right over the flag with a little punt six iron for my third shot, and it ended up in the sand dunes just behind the green. I mean, I was literally only 25 feet from the hole, but had no chance to get that up and down. A bogey six to Monty's par. Now two up with two to play, heading to one of the hardest golf holes in the world. Monty steps up with the honor. And back at 17, Montgomery off of the tee. Oh, and he has found a watery grave. I would say that uh, Mr. Kalkovecki needs to aim left a little. Way left. Just make sure you stay out of the water. You know, I was actually feeling fine, even though I bogeyed 14 and hit a terrible drive on 15. But I actually played 16 pretty good, and I was still, of course, two up with two to go. And then Monty hit it in the water. Uh, then I got nervous because then my, my thought process changed. All I'm trying to do is just, I said, just don't worry about hitting the green. Just get it over the left of the water somewhere, left of the green. And, you know, bogey should be able to win the hole. That's when I made a really bad swing and, and try, tried to hit a two iron as low and as left as I could. Taking the win back to 17 and Mark Calcavecchia, who is two up with two to go. His opponent's in the water. Are you kidding me? That might have been the strangest shot by a pro I've ever seen right there. And I got so far ahead of it. People people think I topped it or, or, or top shanked it. It was just a smother. I de-lofted the club so bad trying to hit it so low that it literally never got in the air. Watch this shot. Teed up. It's teed up. The ball just never got off the ground. It just had about two seconds hang time. Gary Van Sickle notes that the European reaction in the press room was, quote, outright cheering. It was stunning. They let out a huge yell when Calc hit it in the water. The, the shot at 17 was uh, the one that I think just, you know, that, that probably wrecked him that quality of shot. It basically almost a shame. Things are starting to move very quickly. We went over to the other tee that I didn't even know existed for the drop. I had no idea how far it was, and, and I... I, Monty hit first and hit it on the green, and I guess by the flight of his shot that he hit a seven iron from like 120 yards. Now we're just dead straight into the wind, so I hit a seven iron, hit it on the green. But Monty had hit six iron, and his caddy, Kevin Laffey, quickly covered up the club with a towel as he put it back in the bag so Calc couldn't see it. Calc had guessed wrong, and his seven iron was actually 30 feet short of the flag. Well, we'll see if this putt holds true. Everybody's been blowing it right by the hole and uh, see if Kalkovecki can lag it up there. It looks like he does have the right pace, though. That's a good putt. 
Monty, in with double bogey, took off his glove and handed his caddy his coin as Calc lined up his two-foot putt for double bogey to win the match. He putts up there, tapping, I give it to him, and I put it up two feet, and of course I had to putt it. That's when I got super-duper nervous. Calcavecchi now has about a two-foot putt. Close to being a gimme. He's going to let him putt it for the match. Straight downhill putt. But I'm telling you, normally these putts, you sort of hit them in a walk. But right now, there's a lot of different thoughts that go through your mind. The only thing you do is just get over it, hit it solidly, and think of a good one you made similar to this in another similar type of situation. For the first point in the singles match for the United States. This is no gimme right here under pressure. match continues. We move to the 18. Cal Quebecia struggling with his game and struggling with the pressure and struggling with the golf court. The 18th remains. Back in a moment. Bottom line of that hole was I had a two-footer that normally would have been given any other point in the match, but of course he made me putt it, which I expected, and I missed it. That, that's what bothered me the most about that whole match. That was just a tough golf course for Calcavecchia. I don't know how in the world you could describe it any other way. He hits a high cut. Yeah, I don't think he's hit a his straight ball cut, you know? So then 18, and uh, Raymond Floyd was trying to pump me up, and I hit a beautiful free iron right at the flag. And, of course, it went just over the back of the green. Couldn't get that up and down. So we ended up having the match, and uh, I didn't handle it very well. Right after that, I was pretty shaken up, and I, I was worried that that management mine was going to cost us the Ryder Cup and uh, it was just too much for me to handle at the time. Understandably so. The difficulty of Kiowa added to incomparable nerves in front of a national TV audience with teammates in a country counting on him. I can't imagine a more unenviable position to be in. I just grabbed my wife, who's now my ex-wife of course, and you know we just went out on the beach and I had a, I bawled my eyes out for about 10 minutes, came in and regrouped. And I knew I needed to get back out on the course and, and, and cheer my teammates on. Roger Malby wanted to interview me, and I, I was just in no mood for it. And, and Peter Costas was there, who was my teacher at the time, and he just said, you know, Roger, leave him alone. Here's Jim Moriarty again. That Ryder Cup was Malby's first go as being a TV guy. The last time I talked to Roger about this, you know, he said, uh, he said, you know, people now, players now don't really think of me as being a player. You know, he said, but... But then he was still playing some, and everybody knew that he was a player, and he felt that he himself was a player and not a broadcaster. And so uh, at the end, after that match was over, they sent Roger to go find Kalkovecchia, you know, to talk to him. And so he did. And so he and, and Peter Costas were inside the U.S. trailer. Malpe said that Kalkovecchia was just in no condition to talk. He told me, he said, I don't know what a nervous breakdown looks like, but he said if it wasn't a nervous breakdown, that he was right on the cusp of one, that he'd had all the stress that he could stand. His eyes were swollen shut, you know, that he'd, he'd been crying and, and that he'd been physically ill. And the director was saying, um, talk to him. And, and Roger said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk to him. And the director said, well, just stick around. He'll talk, you know. And Roger said, well, look, he said, somebody may, t he may talk to somebody, somebody's going to talk to him, but it's not going to be me. Find somebody else to do it. He said, a month and a half later, they offered me a job. <laughs> Calc had openly wept on the beach and even waded out into the ocean with his shoes still on. 
Payne's down three and Floyd's down similar. And here's Cal three up and on the eighth tee and he, he goes four up through nine and everybody behind him, the nine, the, the eight players playing, we have one not playing obviously, but the eight behind him, they're ignoring the first two guys are getting beat. But they're saying, look at Calc going. Calc birdies 10. Now Calc's up by five. So if Calc can do it, I can do it, Captain. And I'm going, this is really weird because they're, they're ignoring that we're getting beaten two matches. And we started out tied. And they're only talking about one match. But they were all figuring out that if Calc can do it, I can do it. And by the time Calc lost the last five holes, they end up even. And I've talked to him many times about it. I said, you're the one that won this for us. I, I really feel like this is an American team victory. But in all retrospect, if you'd if you'd have made 18 tied 18 holes in a row, we would have lost this thing. So it was tough on him. I can still see, and as the class of Payne Stewart, Payne Stewart took him. He's out there walking on the beach with him. And, uh, he was inconsolable as you could get, practically. In the end, it's, you're you're trying to get a team victory, and I think he understands where I was coming from. Because we needed somebody to step forward, somebody to show us what to do. Yes, he didn't finish the way he wanted to, but uh, he got us through a rough patch. Forget about it. You got a half a point. We won 14 half third. Without your half point, we don't win. So it was, you know, we tried to put it in that perspective, and I think we did. And I would say, did he enjoy I, the party that I, night? I think, yeah, I think he was okay as it went forward. It probably took him a while to get over it, but it ended up not being as big a deal as it felt to him at the time because we did win. Anyway, so we went back out and watched, and, uh, and of course that was still nerve-wracking, and I'm still kind of in a half a state of shock. And then Payne found me for the last few holes. You know, he had his arm around me the whole time, said, you know, you played great this week. You, you know, you were the one of the reasons why we, we got off to such a good start today because we saw you were two up, three up, four up, five up, you know, and it just fired the rest of the team up and blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you what helped a lot, too. When I got to San Antonio and throughout the course of that week, you know, every single player gave me a high five and said, great plan. You're one of the reasons we won. Oh, oh blah, blah, blah. Nobody said anything negative towards me. I must have got a thousand fan letters in my locker that I opened up every single one of them and read them. And every single one of them was, uh, was positive in that same way, you know, saying you're you know, you got two and a half points. You're, you were one of the most valuable, valuable players in the team and the reason we won. So it was just nice to read all that, and it, it actually meant a lot. Kiowa and the conditions had combined to wreak havoc on the nerves of many of the competitors. Some of the holes that were won with, with bogeys or sometimes worse, it, that usually doesn't happen. You Generally, you see a lot of great golf in the Ryder Cup because you have 24 of the best players in the world competing. Azinger got Jose Maria Olathabal for the third time in three days, and they did not exchange a single word on this Sunday. Only four holes were halved between the two of them, and no one ever led by more than one up. The lead changed hands 13 times in total. It ended with Azinger collecting the point as Jose Maria missed a short putt on the last. Azinger would later say, I don't recall saying a word to Olathabal during my singles match with him. I will flat out tell you I feared him. I knew I could not afford to not give that match my complete attention or I'd get beat. To this day, he is the greatest iron player I've ever seen. Gallagher noted, quote, Maybe if they met half a dozen times, said one European supporter in the crowd, Paul would win once, end quote. Steve Pate was out on the course following his UCLA Bruin partner, Corey Pavin. After going 0-2 in team play, Pavin played well and brought plenty of energy to the crowd in the middle of the pack. You know, by the time I got to singles, you know, I was, extremely hungry to help the team in any way I could. 
Captain Gallagher would describe it as, quote, hugely demonstrative. His behavior on the final day bordered on the bizarre as he whipped up gallery support by exaggerating every reaction to almost laughing point. Here's Stockton on the 17th tee with Pavin. Picture that I'm sitting on the 17th tee. I watched Kalkovecchia implode there, and then he goes on to, to lose 18, so he ends up tied and gets a half point. Uh, I had Corey Pavin come up on 17, and he's standing there with two iron. This time I walked up and stood between him and his bag. I said, what's up, Cap? I said, what, what are you considering? What are you hit, thinking of hitting? He said, well, two irons. What do you think? And I said, what else do you think? And he said, well, how about a four wood? And I said, well, how about a three wood? So I hit three wood and, and just pulled it, which was fine because it was not in the water. And it ended up plugging in, the, I guess, a bunker. Technically, there was no bunkers on the course, but it was in the sand and it was plugged on the upslope. And Stephen hit a really good shot on the back of the green. And I hit a, a bunker shot that I'll always remember. I had a great bunker shot and it trickled down to the hole, you know, 40, 50 feet. And I ran after it and basically caught up to the ball before it stopped rolling uh, by the hole and ended up, you know, making the putt for par. And you know, it was about a two, three footer. And and we have the hole, and I won the match. So I was extremely happy to get a point on the board. You know, the matches were extremely close. You know, every point, every half point mattered. Extremely close is an understatement. We are now tied 11-11. to Seve easily dispatched of Wayne Levy, though the match did make it all the way to the 16th hole. Of course, it was not without Seve's usual fanfare. On the 9th, Levy chipped up to within three feet. When it was not conceded, he said he would go ahead and finish. Seve denied that and even called in an official to confirm that it was within Seve's rights to tell Levy that he had to wait. Seve drained his birdie putt to win the hole. Europe 12, USA 11. One of many Europeans to speak out about the crowd issues was Ian Woosnam, who said that, quote, Americans can't drink beer, which was one factor in what went on. They shouldn't be allowed to buy it at Ryder Cups, end quote. Maybe Ian had some perspective on this. As Wayne Levy noted to Golf Digest, I was amazed at how much drinking the Europeans did after they played. And I imagine before they played. There were these kids who serviced the team trailers, who brought us drinks and stuff. They serviced the European trailer too, and they told us they couldn't believe how much they were drinking. And their players would visit the tents where a lot of European fans were, and there were all kinds of chanting, singing songs, and dancing. I thought it was pretty neat, really, but I couldn't believe they could drink that much and still play. Woosnam drew Chip Beck in his singles match. I thought, man, this guy's been drinking like a fish every night. How in the world is this guy going to beat me? I'm in the best shape of my life. Leading two up on the Diabolical 17th, here's Beck. Great memories, too, because I remember going from the uh, 16th green to the 17th tee, and Payne Stewart's hitting me on my shoulder so hard. Come on, Chip, he's yelling at me. I was like, you going to break my shoulder. Slow it down a little bit, Payne, come on. And uh, I get to the tee, and my caddy, Dave Woos, is the chip. You just laid up with your three wood. You hit it 210 yards. You have 209 to the flag. It's a three wood. And I grabbed that three wood. I said, man, Dave, you're the greatest of all time. And I grabbed that three wood, put it right over the flag, about 15 feet from the flag. I mean, it. who would ever think the wind could be blowing that hard? But my caddy was forward thinking enough that he stepped off how far I laid up with my three wood on the previous hole. I mean, that's impressive, isn't it? Beck would ease his putt within inches of the hole and would close out the number one player in the world, three and one. And, uh, but I can tell you right now, I hold it out of the bunker. I hold it out of the fairway. I did all I could do to, to barely beat this guy. USA 12, 
Europe 12. You know, the number one player in the world. That that was a great day for me. And I think it was it definitely was a key match that day because they, they thought I was going to lose for sure. Here's Paul Broadhurst. I just remember it was a really tough, tough day. I mean, it was blowing 25, 30 miles an hour. So pars were really good. And I, I just remember playing really solid early on and making uh, six straight pars. And, I mean, I won three of the holes. That got me three up after six. And I managed to keep that all the way around, really. I think Mark got me back to two on a couple of occasions. I mean, the scoring that day in the in the singles was really pretty poor. I know uh, I looked at some stats a few years ago, and I know Seve, I think, was the only player uh, around level par. Uh, I think I was one over when I won my match. I was one over after 16. We didn't actually complete 17, but... I mean, some of the scoring was really poor, but the conditions, I mean, it played so difficult that day. Interestingly there, Paul mentions how they didn't finish the 17th hole. Marco Mira hit his tee shot into the water on 17 and had no idea that Paul's ball off the green had ended in such a bad lie that it would have been easy for him to skim one into the water. O'Meara put his third into the pond and waved his arms in surrender. Gallagher encouraged Paul to go shake his hand as quickly as possible and said, Frankly, I was amazed no American had checked Paul's lie. Europe 13, USA 12. There was not much drama to report in the Torrance couples match, as Fred won easily 3-2. We're tied again at 13. Lanny Watkins beat Mark James 3-2, and, and tears filled Lanny's eyes as he told the international audience, I don't know if I've ever worked harder. Kurt Sampson writes, After all this, six days on the wild, charming island, 27 matches, a limo crash, Indignation, brilliance, abject failure, chanting, seafood, psych-outs, and soccer songs, the result was still in doubt. If Hale won or halved, the United States won. If Hale lost, the match would be tied, and Europe would retain the cup. The tension was unparalleled by any other event in golf. I remember on the Sunday afternoon, or Sunday was pretty difficult because the wind was blowing, I'm, I'm guessing, 20 to 30 miles an hour, maybe more. And the greens are very exposed. Some of them were high elevated greens, so you had you couldn't bounce the ball in there or run it up. You had to put the ball up in the air, and that's always difficult when the wind blows. There were enough scoreboards out there and enough chatter amongst uh, the gallery, and you see your captain periodically. And but I tried to stay totally focused on my match because Bernard was a heck of a player, and and I knew that I had my hands full because I was not playing great myself. I was managing what I had quite well, but I wasn't hitting awesome golf shots. The golf course just played hard. And even if you were playing well, it was still hard. So I was just trying to take care of business, if you wish. So I didn't do a lot of looking around because matches are not won or lost on the front nine. They're won or lost on the back nine. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, we're coming down to the last hole of the last group. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how Helen Bernhard were feeling. I mean, that's so much pressure on individuals. You could see the pressure on, on Irwin. And, and the reason I picked Irwin, I said, anybody that's won three U.S. Opens has got to have nerves of steel and has to be able to handle anything thrown at him. And longer, I was amazed that uh, he was picked to be in the last spot. He's, he's not a good putter, particularly. As conditions ramped up, the match was going as planned for the 46-year-old Hale Irwin. My if you want to call it my plan, the way the opening holes kind of went out, there were four or five holes that went out, 
and then you you came back on the front nine, then you went you shipped in the same direction on the back nine initially. So I thought I've got to hold my own on the outgoing hole into the wind and get up on the downwind hole because that's where my game was suffering going into the wind. I was not hitting the ball real falling, getting kind of weak shots, but downwind I could manage that. And that's what happened. I played him straight up going out. I got two up going down. And once he made the turn going back to the clubhouse, then it became, I think, more favorable for him. I, I, I tell you, one of the greatest people I learned, earned so much respect for was Hale Irwin. Because Hale Irwin, I remember the last night, I don't know if you remember this at all, but Hale Irwin was, he was in his 40s. And literally, I think every player on the team could hit it 40 by him. And I'm thinking to myself, here's a golf course. It makes the turn towards the clubhouse. The wind's blowing left to right. And if you can't hit a draw, a low draw with a closed club face, like a Calcavecchi, you couldn't get it on the ground on 17. You never hit, it never hit earth. You always hit the ocean over there. And it worked against every weakness of Hale Irwin that I would hate to have been able to finish that thing off. And I mean, like even Langer hit iron in on the last hole, Hale Irwin's hitting three wood. So it's a real tough test for a guy like Hale coming in. So Hale knew he had to get up on that, on Langer that last day before he made that turn to the clubhouse. By the time they began that stretch back toward the clubhouse, it had become clear what was at stake. I finally asked Dave, oh, I guess we had three or four holes to go. I said, Dave, where are we? Because I'm counting all the team members and everybody's here. He gave me the, the score and that it was obvious that the winner of this match was going to win the Ryder Cup. I think I realized it with four holes to go. I, I was keeping an eye on the leaderboard and kind of looked close all the time. And then as it turned out, I, I recall that I was on the 15th hole and I looked over there and I saw that actually all the matches were done. The groups right in front of us, they were one with big margins, so they were finished. I realized I was two down with four to go. I had to win my, my match because we were at that stage. It looked like we were one point behind. And if I could win my match, we would tie the overall match. And because we had won it the previous time, we would keep the Ryder Cup. But after the parents came out, I, I was kind of looking at them and just making some obvious assumptions, very rough that, Okay, here's one of their players playing really well against one of our players, so they, they might win that one, and oh, here, here we're going to win that one. I kind of went through the whole 11 matches, and 10 matches, I guess it was, and I turned to my wife, and I said, I've got a funny feeling it's going to come down to my match. After Langer doubled the extremely difficult 14th hole, Irwin was two up with four holes to play. Everyone listening to this knows how it ends, but not many remember that as Langer teed it up on 15, he needed to win three of the next four holes and at least have the fourth or the cup was gone. I contacted our friends at Data Golf to calculate the likelihood of Langer coming back to win the match, and they estimated it would be about 3.2% at this point in the match. With all of the other matches on the course complete, both teams gathered around anxiously certainly have a lot of weight riding on your shoulders when you, you look around and you see all your team members following you along with the last few holes. In previous years, Bernard Longer had suffered a severe case of the yips. Severe. Double hit putts, four putts from three feet. In 1982, he had putted a 15-footer off the green at the British PGA. But the arm lock putting technique that he had adopted had been a lifesaver. Irwin played the 15th hole poorly, 
and Longer stood over a six-foot par putt to win the hole that was essentially a must-make. It fell right in the center. The lead was down to one. Very difficult par five on Sunday when Bernard Knight hit it across the water and neither one of us was near the green. David was speaking, it could have been, uh, I'm not sure, Kenneth Harris maybe on the other side. As we're walking off the tee, very, very tense moment. And they're speaking Spanish. And I just kind of lightheartedly went up and said, hey, Sevi, what are you saying? And he told me, is it's too bad you didn't knock it in the water. <laughs> that, that would be a response that would come from Sevi. Irwin was left with 188 yards in with his third at the 16th. Into the wind and off the left, his ball veered well right, off a mound and into the gallery. Ian Woosnam would later claim that someone kicked or threw his ball from the sand into the grass, despite the video showing the ball come down on the grass. Nevertheless, he's quoted as saying, I saw the ball land at the top of a sand dune. I looked away for a few seconds, then turned back to see the ball sitting in the middle of a hollow pin high right of the green in a decent lie. Kurt Sampson notes that the tape also shows Woosnam smiling in the moments after Irwin's shot, sitting next to Seve and in front of Fanny, not gesturing or raising a fuss about an injustice. With Longer in a deep waste bunker left of the green, Irwin chipped up to three feet. It looked like the U.S. might win the cup right there. Longer would need to get up and down or rely on an Irwin miss from close range. Longer played out to six feet and calmly rolled in yet another do-or-die putt. Irwin was one up and needed only a half on one of the last two holes to clinch it for the U.S. I just can't tell you how hard some of those holes were coming back in, particularly the 17th, the par three. It was the wind was blowing, and he hit a one iron. I hit a three wood just to get it over the water and over the left somewhere. So you you really couldn't hit it to green. It was almost like it's a drivable par four, except it's a par three, but you didn't go at it. Uh, you had to play safely. And, Again, the wind was the worst possible wind for Irwin's shot shape, but he got a three-wood across the water. As his ball landed, a fan threw a ball towards the pin, confusing the television cameras, but not Irwin. As both players prepared to play from the short grass left of the green, hundreds of fans move onto the actual surface of the green to watch the drama play out. Longer rolled it up beautifully to four feet. Irwin played too firmly and rolled it eight feet past. Nonetheless, he had a putt to win the Ryder Cup. It missed. Longer lined up his third straight do-or-die putt. Bernard Gallagher notes, Seve wanted to help Longer so much that he suggested that I go out on the green at the 17th to tell him the line of the putt, which I was entitled to do, but I did nothing. I told Seve that it would just add to the pressure on Bernard. Can you imagine my going forward in front of 20,000 people to tell him the line? In fact, my mind went back to Florida in 1983 when Jack Nicklaus had looked so incongruous going on the greens to help one of his teammates with the line. Both had it wrong. Jack came out of that poorly. Longer settled in and poured the putt in the hole. They actually made three putts in a row that each had that kind of uh, pressure. The 15, 16, and 17. I think I had two to to win two holes and one to tie a hole with Hale Irwin. If I had missed any of those three, the, the match would have been over. So he made some really crucial five, six, seven, eight-foot putts coming in that really kept the match alive going down 18. Did I do my part? Well, I made a couple myself, but I didn't, I didn't do the, the spectacular stuff that Bernard did to keep himself in there. So I was two down with four to play, and I was able to manage uh, managed to win two holes. I won the 17th, and I, I think I won the 15th, if I'm not mistaken. 
So now we're on the 18th tee. Uh, Hale Aaron and I are even level. Yet I had to, and the, Amer- the European team was one down overall. So I had to win the last hole to win my match and to win a point. Seems like everybody was gathered around the 18th because there was no other golf to watch. And it was, uh, it all came down to that last hole. So all the players, most of the spectators, you know, they all wanted to get a glimpse. Uh, either there in life or at a nearby TV, I suppose. The gallery moved quickly along the fairway, trying to get greenside for even a slimmer of a view. Longer drove beautifully down the middle. Hale tugged his ball badly to the left. It hit into the gallery, hit a lady who was actually with the PGA of America. It hit her, so it wouldn't have rolled anywhere. In fact, it probably, by hitting her, it, it made the hole where I couldn't reach it to. Because there are some bunkers in front of the green. Then there's a little fairway before he got to the green. Oh, I could, I could just barely get over those bunkers. I couldn't even get to the green. So some people may say by hitting uh, this person in the gallery, it kept him from going in the – no, no, it didn't. It, I was still in the grass. It's just that it kept me from getting closer where I had a chance to get to the green. So I don't look at it as something that was good uh, by any means. That lady was Kathy Jordan, who was quoted saying, I was just inside the ropes, in the rough, not in the sand. We stopped walking just as Irwin was about to hit. Then we heard a four yell, and I turned away. It hit me on the small of the back on the left side, just above the waist, and bounced off. If you think that's where the story of this tee shot ends, you probably haven't been following this closely enough. Paul Broadhurst said, More than once that week, American balls appeared in the middle of fairways when they seemed to be headed toward places not quite so friendly. Hale Irwin's drive on the last tee in the last match was one. It was headed way left, yet suddenly it was back in play. And Bernard Longer. One thing I never understood and which no one has explained to me was what happened on number 18 when Hale Irwin drove off. He totally snap-hooked his tee shot 40 yards left of where his ball ended up. It looked like his ball was going into the sand dudes, but when we got down there, it was on the edge of the fairway where he could hit a three-wood. Uh, we both came up short. I probably 20 yards short of the green, 15 yards short of the green. He just on the friend. Irwin would later note that, of course, he was incredibly nervous. And it showed on his chip, barely making it halfway there. Irwin had bogeyed 14 and 15, parred 16, bogeyed 17, and now appeared poised to make another bogey on 18. There was now a very real chance that Hale Irwin was going to lose three of the last four holes and the Ryder Cup was going to be retained by Europe. Irwin told a reporter, quote, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. The sphincter factor was high. Johnny Miller told Golf Digest, there was more pressure put on those two players than ever was exerted on anyone on a golf course ever. Irwin's nerves might have been good enough to win three U.S. Opens, but this was too much, even for him. Longer played well from the fringe, but too hard. The ball rolled six feet past. Irwin came up about 18 inches short, and Longer conceded it. Bogey. Longer was six feet away from retaining the Ryder Cup for Europe. Here's Irwin. By virtue of going down there several days more frequently, several rounds, I had played more than anybody else on the team. I remember being in the team room, and I told them, if you're on 18, for whatever reason, there seems to be more of a back-to-front break than it appears. Whether it's slope, whether it's the grain, whether it's the way the wind comes through, something is making that ball break more to the front than you think. The question is, what was I thinking about? I was thinking that I, I hope Bernard doesn't know what I know. 
Yeah, we went through my routine, uh, you know, looking at the putts from both sides. And my caddy, Peter Coleman, at the time was reading the putts with me. And we both came to the same conclusion that it's a left-edge putt. But it was uh, a unique situation because I had two very crusty spike marks exactly on that line. I mean, it was only a six-foot putt. Uh, so about a, a foot in front of my ball or something, there were these two crusty spike marks standing up off, you know, above the ground. And they were exactly on my line left edge. So we both saw it. So we both, you know, felt there was a left edge putt with a slope. But we had a quick discussion. Well, if I hit those spike marks, the ball can bounce left. It can bounce right. It can do anything and everything. And it's, you have to understand the type of grass. Some spike marks are not as bad as others when you play you know, bent grass, and it's a little moist, soft. The grass is soft, so the ball goes more or less on over it. But when you play Kiowa, and uh, I think it was Bermuda grass, and it was late in the afternoon, about 5 or 6 p.m. or whatever it was, and the grass was, it was windy and sunny. Uh, the grass was really crusty. So I figured that ball, if it hits those spike marks, it had no chance. So we decided to avoid the spike marks by putting it straight. I figured if I aim at the middle of the hole, I would just miss the spike marks, and hopefully the putt would only break slightly so it would still go in on the right half or inside right. Uh, and that's what Peter McCaddy and I decided to do in the end. Remember that I noted earlier that this was only the third match to make it to 18 green all day. Regarding these spike marks... Based on where they putted from and the paths they walked, Kurt Sampson notes that they could well have been from the nails on the soles of the Stylo shoes of Stylo's worldwide spokesman, Nick Faldo. Oh, you could hear a pin drop. It, it was just an amazing atmosphere. I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it. I mean, I'm sitting beside the green. I got my head down as he's getting ready to putt this four-foot putt. And I realized that we're, we're probably going to end up tied. I feel bad because I thought we were going to win by a bigger margin, and we would have if we hadn't had the limo wreck, I don't think. Roger Maltby said, I was at the front of the green when Irwin and Longer were putting out. The crowd was enormous and completely encircled the green. I was kneeling next to Faraday. When Longer was over his putt, David announces, This is bullshit. We've all dreamed about having putts to win the Open or the Masters, but nobody wants this putt right now. It was as dramatic a moment as I have ever experienced. thought I made actually a good a good putt, but it did break and went over the right lip and didn't go in. You know, I had to make a decision about the spike marks, what I try and hit him and go over him or, or go to the side of it. I made the best decision at the time I could, and it was maybe the wrong decision. But that's golf. We make, uh, you know, 70 decisions a, a day. I, I didn't watch the putt, and then I heard this roar before I realized that he missed it. Payne jumped up and grabbed me and hugged me and, and just started yelling, we won, we won, we won. Everything after that to me is a complete blur. I don't remember going into the ocean with our blue blazers on, that picture you see all the time. No recollection of that. No recollection of the uh, the dinner that night or the party. Of course, I was probably blasted out of my mind. Well, the immediate uh, effect obviously was... Uh in a sense, very disappointing because uh, I, I felt like I you know, played good and I made a good putt and it didn't go in and I felt bad for the team. Uh, they all suffered because I didn't make that putt, basically. 
and the celebrations were tremendous on the U.S. side, and rightly so, after, you know, being defeated for whatever it was, five or six years or three times in a row, now to have won it back on their own, in their own land is, is a wonderful achievement. But I know there were many, many players reached out to me, and, and Hale Irwin was one of them uh, on the U.S. side, but several others. And my whole team said, you know, nobody, nobody should have ever had to face that putt, and uh, it's just tremendous pressure, and uh, but, you know, whatever they said at the time, I still felt terrible. Uh, that's just how it is in competition, especially that kind of competition where there's a, just a winner and a loser. There's nothing else. I remember being on the 18th green celebrating, and the crowd had just come onto the 18th green. And I was actually quite concerned for safety because, you know, we're getting smashed up there. There were so many people pushing and shoving. And finally, the police kind of escorted us out through a corridor. And we got off the green, and, and then we celebrated as a team. And I remember going over to the ocean and jumping in the ocean and throwing Stockton in. It was a blast. It was really fun. I loved Bernard Langer at the time, so when he missed, I was more gutted for him and how he would have to deal. He won the next two tournaments, by the way. No big deal. <laughs> Of course um, he did. So I didn't go down to the beach to celebrate because I didn't want to rub his nose in it. If you'll notice the 18-hole celebration, you won't see me because I backed out because I love Bernard so much, I backed out of there. I didn't want to be a part of it. On, on the one hand, they're, they're so excited to have won. On the other hand, I don't think there was a player there whose heart didn't bleed for longer. They all understood the weight that was on his shoulders. I've never seen tears from several of our star players before you know that's that's how much it meant to to them you know that's how much the defeat meant it's an incredible position to be in as an individual uh, i can only think of a few times maybe in the history of the Ryder cup where that actually happened but it didn't take me overly long i had a lot of support from family friends colleagues and i actually traveled straight to the uh, german masters which is actually my own tournament like you know arnold has the Bayhawk classic and jack has the memorial tournament i had the german masters it was in stuttgart so when we flew back monday i faced the press on tuesday i played practice rounds and tried to you know move on with my life and uh, basically my thinking was hey i did the best i could that's all anybody can ever ask of me uh, i think that's what bernhardt took away from it was that you know, he did everything right. It just didn't get the result that he wanted. But I was really proud of him and how he handled the whole situation as well. A lot of people have said they wouldn't have wished that putt on anybody. And it wouldn't be my favorite. Nearly dark, much darker than what people think it was. And an inside left putt was putt-breaking right for a right-handed player. is a very hard putt to start with when you can even see it. I, I remember going into the European trailer after a little while and just checking up on him and make sure that he was okay. And, you know, Bernhardt's uh, a man of perspective, and, and he was fine. You know, he was good. He told me he had a great putt, and he just misread it, and it or it didn't go in or it didn't do what he thought, whatever. You know, a, a great attribute of, of Bernhardt is he went out the next week and, and played, I think, in Germany, and he won the tournament. Every single person that I've talked to over the course of putting this podcast together has mentioned the fact that Bernhard went out the next week and won. Here's Jim Moriarty documenting the U.S. celebration. Honest to God, this was the photographer's idea, sort of a group of us. 
went to the PGA and we said, look, you know, when we do the team photograph, this photograph should be on the beach, you know, and then because they were going to do it, you know, at the grandstands or whatever, whatever. And, and we said, no, 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 this photograph's got to be on the beach. So we get the whole team and we're going down to the beach to do the, to do the team photograph on the beach. And we do a quick photograph and then these guys start throwing each other in the water. Okay. <laughs> so now they're, now they're throwing each other in the water and, and I mean, it's like a bunch of kids. And so we all st- the photographers, we all start running into the water to take these pictures of somebody throwing paving up in the air and in the water and this guy, you know, and they're throwing each other in and pushing each other down and stuff. And I get about, you know, I get about to mid thigh uh, in the water and it all of a sudden occurs to me, my entire day's take of photographs is in my pocket. And if I go in the water, everything is ruined. Everything is ruined. <laughs> and, so, and so all of a sudden, I just, I couldn't see myself, but I'm pretty sure my face turned as white as it's possible to be. <laughs> and, and I turned around and I, I ran in the opposite direction as fast as I could and got, and got, everything, out, and got everything out of my pockets. Yeah, I remember Marco Mira grabbing me and wanting to throw me in that water with Dave Sox. And I said, I ducked out. I said, I'm not getting this beautiful jacket. and I'm not getting sand in my britches. I'd been in that beach in the, down in South Carolina at Myrtle Beach. I knew that's so fun getting in the ocean with your clothes on. I asked a bunch of the participants about the celebration and how that night unfolded. I, I think we all left. I think it was the worst celebration ever. <laughs> Honestly, I think well, I we remember just the left. pictures was, where everybody's on the beach. And oh, that was right water. after the match. Okay. Now that was right after the matches. Those guys went down to the beach. Cal could like wreck the last four or five holes and lost his match, so he was going banana psycho somewhere. They vary a lot of times. The venue has a lot to do with it. It was a whole different scenario, but it was it was good. It was uh, probably a little bit more reserved than you would think, especially compared to '83. Yeah. Um, you know you've had a successful Ryder Cup career when you're comparing the venues of the celebration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One team didn't really want to be there. That was a problem. So I'm not sure what happens now. But, yeah, we had the victory dinner, and we were given some, uh, some uh, prints from um, Graham Baxter. Uh, I just went around the room and, and got everyone to sign those that evening. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a funny atmosphere. One team's on a big high and the other team's really low and wants, doesn't want to be there. It just made it. It made it so much fun playing the European players. You know, we we knew them all really well. We had parties with them just about every night. You know, some of them could drink heavily. I mean, it was impressive what they could drink and still go out and play great golf. But you know, we were good friends before the Ryder Cup, and I think we were just fine after. Everybody thinks we hated each other and all that. You know, Sevy taught me as much as anybody too. Mm-hmm. He was great. We were coming back, getting off the bus, going back to our accommodations, and I was walking with pain just out of the corner of my eye he he went up it's almost like he had jumped up in the air except that wasn't the case Ian Woosnam who's relatively short in stature but a very strong guy had come up behind pain stuck his head between his legs and lifted him up on his shoulders just in a in a second and I thought that just really kind of mirrored what the two teams felt towards one another we're still fun, still had the admiration, still had great respect. What it did is it changed the Ryder Cup dramatically from that point forward. 
I remember after the, that Ryder Cup was over, I think uh, there was a, an effort on both sides from the PGA of America as well as the European Tour to get the captains together and make sure that the future Ryder Cups are played um, a little bit more friendly, if that's the right word. The world got to see what it meant for two equal teams to go out there and fight it to the end. And uh, that's what they got, and now that's what the Ryder Cups become because these are... There's, there's no saying we're favorites or their favorites. It's just a, it's, it's, nobody's going to go in and say, well, we're going to stomp these guys because that didn't happen to Kiowa, and that's not going to happen very often. For all the contentiousness that defined this event, none of it was ever pointed in the direction of Bernard Longer. But to this day, the relationship between Bernard Gallagher and Dave Stockton is frosty. Gallagher said, A lot of the American players were upset about their team's antics that week. A couple of them even wrote to me to say they were sorry and that the tournament hadn't been played in the manner they'd expect. I don't want to reveal who those players were out of respect, but they know who they are. He also said that Dave Stockton sent me a Christmas card featuring a picture of himself and the winning U.S. team, which I threw in the fire. Stockton said, I've seen him a couple times, but have I tried to talk to Gallagher? No, he's not a friend of mine. I'm not even sure he likes himself, and I don't think it's worth my time to speak with him. I, I hope Bernard... Gallagher has, has come to realize that I didn't have any alternative motives. He, in reading his book, I never wrote a book about it because I didn't think I should. He had all these conspiracy theories that I had people that were going to call and do this stuff and nothing like that. I was I was just so honored. Kathy and I both were very honored to be picked to be the Ryder Cup captain. At the closing ceremony, Gallagher tells a story about shaking the vice president's hand and says, quote, even if it was undiplomatic, I told Dan Quayle that I wanted to remind him that we in Britain and in Europe had servicemen killed in the Gulf War too. Quayle looked bewildered, end quote. Quayle made a short speech at the closing ceremony and then ducked out to play nine holes before darkness set in. The teams ate together that night, and Gallagher noted how somber the three previous victory meals had been because unlike his chaps, the Americans take defeat so badly. Our team, in contrast, knew how to lose. Gallagher would be the captain of the European Ryder Cup team again in 93 and finishes his book saying, We did not like losing, but losing the way we did so narrowly and with such dignity was not so bad. America regained their self-respect, but only just. They are sure to be worried at the prospect of taking us on at the Belfry. Dave Stockton wanted to keep his job, but lost out. Tom Watson is the man the PGA of America has chosen to lead their team in 1993. His captaincy will be different in character to that of Stockton. Tom has nothing to prove and seems determined to remind his players about the tradition that surrounds the Ryder Cup. The U.S. would also go on to win the 1993 Ryder Cup at the Belfry, the last time they've won on European soil. I asked Bernard Longer for his parting thoughts on the 1991 Ryder Cup. Maybe three stories, really. One was, uh, you know, the way uh, Hale Irwin handled it, and uh, he was very gracious towards me. Secondly, uh, I was uh, overwhelmed by the support of all my European team and colleagues and even many others uh, in, in our defeat. Um, you know, Sebi was crying and, and he set me off. And, and But the overall support was incredible. And uh, thirdly, I seem to remember that I think Payne Stewart came came over and just our team room and just said, hey, let's just celebrate our friendship. Let's just enjoy uh, uh, this time. We're all playing a great game. And, and he kind of put it all in perspective. And that was pretty cool.
That concludes our look back at the 1991 Ryder Cup. Again, special thanks to our partner BMW for bringing this episode to you, as well as the PGA of America for the audio you heard, to Kurt Sampson's book, The War by the Shore, Bernard Gallagher's book, Captain at Kiowa, to Stuart Moore from the PGA Tour that helped set up so many of the interviews, and to all of the participants, Captain Dave Stockton, Bernard Longer, Mark Kalkovecchia, Hale Irwin, Chip Beck, Corey Pavin, Paul Broadhurst, Paul Azinger, Lanny Watkins, and Jim Moriarty. Also, thank you to the Golf Channel for the audio clips from Faraday, to the 2012 Golf Digest article titled The Rowdy Ryder Cup at Kiowa, to Golf TV for the audio from Billy Foster, and hopefully that covers off on all of the tremendous sources that I had to piece this material together. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and hope to do more of these in the future. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different.